continue to Fanboy Podcast. Please follow us on Twitter and Facebook. You can also catch us on the various platforms such as iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher, and to be continued, a fanboypodcast.com. Don't forget to like and subscribe. To be continued is an adult podcast for adults by adults. We may talk about superheroes, sci-fi, comic books, and all sorts of similar crap like that, but we may use adult and frank language when we do so. This is not a podcast for kids, brothers and sisters. Enjoy. And we're back. Welcome to To Be Continued, a fanboy podcast. That's for your fanboy passions, and you, you may not win anything. And if you stick around, you better have some fun! <laughs> you better! That's a command. That was, that was a threat. A proclamation. A threat. That was a threat. You better have An some imperative. fun. And we, hopefully we will have some fun. <laughs> Thank you, everybody. This is To Be Continued, a fanboy podcast covering your fanboy passions. As always, we are coming to you from Pancake Studios in the heart of Brooklyn, provided by one Jonathan Vergara, the yeah. editor with the Mosius. Yes, that's me. As always, oh wait, what are you stepping oh, on toes right. for, man? Just, Your buddy's here, and right, you're buddy, just taking over. <laughs> you're just swinging it around, man. You're just swinging it around. I'm just feeling it. You're just I, feeling you're, it. You're, you're <laughs> and I'm like, all right, this is my this is my way in. Uh, Edward uh, Ing, as always, is my co-host. I'm Miguel Velez. You're one of your other hosts, and this is the show that covers all genre work, science fiction, superheroes, and all that nonsense. Now, today's show is a very special show, and, and I cede the floor to my good friend <laughs> Edward Ng as he introduces our special guest and what we're going to be covering today. Well, thank you, everyone, and uh, I am delighted um, to have an old buddy of mine from high school, um, high school being Zavarian High School uh, at Brooklyn, um, Brian Solomon, who we haven't seen each other in a long time. And we've been trying to get you on the show for for a while, for quite a bit. Um, but it just seemed apropos to get you on to discuss uh, not just uh, your career and some of your works, but also on all things kaiju. Uh, now, Brian, you are um, an author. You've had it seems to me that you've had uh, quite an interesting career, um, not just with uh, some books that you've authored over the years. Uh, Godzilla FAQ. Yep. Pro Wrestling FAQ. We're gonna. By the way, we're gonna we're gonna somehow bridge the gap between those two. At it's some not point. that big of a bridge. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you've also you are former employee with WWE as a staff writer. Is that correct? Yeah, I, I worked in the publications department okay. uh, specifically, but the, but the way that company works, I was all over the place. You know, I was like jack of all trades kind of thing. But but mainly the magazines back okay, when they okay. had such things. Okay. That was my uh, bread and butter. Don't, yeah. don't don't date yourself, man, because that's a, <laughs> we do have to say that kids. There were these things on paper. They were called magazines. You yeah, could pick them up. You on read the them. You know, they had <laughs> but, pictures. Uh, uh, welcome to the show. Uh, it is a, a pleasure seeing you. Uh, you are FaceTiming in, and we're very quite happy uh, for you to be on the show. Uh, a little bit of backdrop to, to our history as, as classmates. Um, Brian, uh, I've always sort of had a kind of a kindredness with you, um, not just because we were both in a, in the, with the English club. And don't be fooled, ladies and gentlemen. 
if you sat in Dr. Giordano's English club, you weren't necessarily learning about English as so much as we were watching movies like such as yeah. uh, The Highlander. Thank you. <laughs> such, well, we went to see Highlander 2 in the theater. It, I don't know if you were there wow. for that. I, I, no, I, I wasn't. That but, was an English club like class trip. That Bri- we did. Bri- Brian, 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 the, uh, your parents pay, were paying for this, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, do- Doctor Giordano, as Ed is talking about, uh, Doctor G, as we call him, he right. told us flat out it was basically a way to get something really impressive on your high school transcript and kind of fool the colleges and still <laughs> just basically have fun. He said it flat out, right? So, but like there would be a pretense. We would watch Excalibur. And then we would talk about like <laughs> King Arthur legends and all this stuff. <laughs> yeah, right. So, so he would he would find a way to make it fun. But yeah, I mean, it was basically a movie club. You know, we watched like <laughs> yeah, we, we, we went to see we went to the theater to see Total Recall. For yeah, Canada. that's true. <laughs> again, <laughs> again, the, the 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 people who run the financials at Zaverian. Thank your parents. Well, you, you, they have to give us something because there weren't any girls at the time, and now they're it's a co-ed school. So unless you, were, unless you were in stage crew, those guys got let, to hang out with the. With uh, the well, uh, I I was involved with this with the talent show, so I got to hang out with some of the are the, the sister school, the uh, the Fontbonne Academy Hall girls. Yes, and um, and my god sister, it was also a, a a student, but you know the girls came after class anyway, and we hung out. At school to the late hours. I but I'm getting a spec script vibe here right now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting a I want to call it Zaverian Days. Well, about, I'll you tell know. you if you've ever seen the the eighties um movie uh, teen movie Heaven Help Us about the boys Catholic school. <laughs> Wait, is that okay, hold on. Is that about <laughs> it's like based the, on the, our school? The okay? the younger priest wow. who comes in? Yes, that, it's that, uh, it's John it's John Hurd. He's like the cool priest. Wow! And like Patrick Dempsey, Kevin Dillon. You, you know the movie I'm talking about. So basically, that movie <laughs> was the guy who wrote it went to St. Michael's, which was like the 1950s predecessor of Severian, and he wrote it based on his experiences. So and and, and the guy in there, brother, who the hell, brother Thaddeus, who's like the oh, really yeah, yeah yeah yeah. He yeah. was a real guy. He just died like two or three years ago. And you know what his name was? Brother, Brother Thaddeus. Brother Thaddeus. <laughs> For real. Yeah. Um, now, aside from that, we also um, – uh, oh, by the way, Mr. Mc- were you in Mr. McClarty's English class? Yeah, that's actually the one I remember even more was being with, uh, in that class with you. McClarty's um, – I think it was English too, right? Sophomore yeah. English maybe? It was sophomore. And I'll tell you, the gateway uh, – that man changed my life. I just want no. To say. He changed my life truly because um, yes. he showed us uh, um, uh, Zeffirelli's um, Franco Zeffirelli's. <laughs> wow, Ro- okay, Rome- would, Romeo and Juliet. Was going there, and then you said Zeffirelli, and I was like, he's gonna go there. It's <laughs> Romeo and Juliet with Olivia yes. Hussey. Yes, as Ro- as Juliet, and I remember uh, from the because, it, like you say, it is an extension of the English club. So we watched movies of of that particular play. And Olivia Hussey breathed her, you know, breathe. <laughs> she took a breath in that, in that, um, uh, in that corset, and that changed my and life. So did you. <laughs> and then you took a breath, and I became a man that day. I think. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I, I was right on the same track. One yes. more class, uh, uh, chemistry class. Oh. <laughs> drawing comics while yeah. being bored at uh, Mr. F- Williamson Cortez's chemistry class. May he rest in peace. May yeah. he rest in peace. And I think there's a, an epitaph stone in front of the, in front of Zaverian High School. 
that that cut uh, that class was so frustrating to me because I am not a math and science person at all. And I remember feeling such despair. Like I remember like actually there were times where I felt like I was going to burst out laughing because I couldn't believe the absurdity of I'm sitting there. This man is clearly speaking the English language. Like I can understand like individual words I could understand, but putting them together it made absolutely no sense to me, and I just couldn't understand how that was even possible. And I almost wanted to laugh. It was just so ridiculous. And yeah, so I drew a bunch of comic strips. Yeah, instead. and so I think like, that was a challenge because I was also artistically inclined, and we were sort of like always trading uh, um, comics just to see like who had the better comic strip. You always, yes. yours was always more satirical by nature, and <laughs> and, and way more enjoyable than than what I could ever like turn out. I'll tell you, if I did those comic strips today, <laughs> I would have been. They would have locked me up. I'm not even kidding. No, they would I'm have not had kidding. Me in, they would have had me yeah. under like there's a lot, of, a lot of more zero tolerance for that kind yeah, of yeah, like, like, like things about you know like throwing teachers out the window and all this stuff. <laughs> right, yeah, and and I the sad, you know, the sad part is that they probably would have good reason for that. Another parents would be like. You'd be like, yeah, I just drew like me machine gunning some stuff. What what is that? And they'd be like, yeah, yeah. have you watched the you, news? <laughs> have you ever heard of? It's amazing that. The, go, go ahead. But this is, but that's what I mean. But this is why I I tend to have not not for school shooters obviously, but I tend to have a lot of sympathy <laughs> for high school for high school kids that make dumb mistakes because you really don't know what the hell you're doing. Like right, right. I can tell you, the, can you see me? You just paused. Yeah, oh, I'm yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So the worst one I ever did, I think about it now, I'm like, what was I thinking? I think it was because we were learning about World War II in, in global studies. <laughs> I had, I don't know if you remember this, Mr. Verdi, our Italian teacher, oh, the, prem the premise of the comic was that Mr. Verdi wants to bring back the Third Reich. <laughs> and, he, and he shows up at school with like a machine gun and he just starts mowing people down and he's like recruiting other kids to join like his third right wow everybody thought it was the funniest damn thing ever but you know you're 15 years old you don't know what the hell you know right. i would uh, you know that's why i'm like wow yeah you're going you're going for a jojo rabbit vibe and, yeah, I guess so. And but, and, 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 you and you're going, but everyone else is going. This is American History X, <laughs> right? It, it's 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 not funny to look back at it now, but when I because I still have them. But Ed, do you do you remember the the one thing I remember is you did, and this is a, a funny story. I don't know if I ever told you this, but we collaborated once on this. <laughs> so you know what I'm talking about? It was a Star Wars collage that you drew. Yeah. And the idea we had was we were going to be like comic book guys. So you were going to pencil it. And I was going to ink it, right? <laughs> so we did. But here's the funny thing. I don't think I ever told you this. My mother was an artist. And she was like a textile designer and an illustrator. And she didn't really get comic books. She didn't understand, like, the collaborative nature of the work. So, like, I showed it to her. I was like, Mom, what do you think about this? Like, my friend Ed, like, drew, you know, penciled this. And I, and I did the inks. She was like, what do you mean? You you wow. you traced over somebody else's drawing? What are you talking what? about? I'm like, yeah, you know, mom, this is how they do it in comics. She's like, Brian, don't you ever do that again. Don't you ever do that again. If you're going to draw something, draw it yourself. Draw it yourself. She was so offended by the fact that I inked your drawing. She thought like I was like something. Like you were, like you were manipulating. You're not a, you're not a little like, child anymore. Really? It's not a com. Uh, it's not a coloring book. It's like right. She thought like you were going to take credit for what I did. Like that's what she thought. It's like oh, anyway. so, 
Kevin Smith would just barge into the door and it's like, you're, so basically you're tracing, right? You know, like, you're <laughs> right. tracing. That was what it was. That was what it was. Oh, um, wow. And then uh, pretty much, I guess for the past decade or so, we've been friends on social media. We haven't really seen each other in person in a while. Uh, I understand that you are no longer a Brooklyn Knight. You've right. been, you're now a citizen, you're now a citizen in Connecticut. Is that where you are? Yeah, I've been here for almost 20 years now. Wow. If if I I mean if I was in Brooklyn, I I'd be there in person right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, sorry yeah. about that, but No, not at all. But I mean, uh, wh- wait, where where in Brooklyn did you uh did you grow up? I grew up in mainly Bensonhurst. Ah, okay, okay, okay. Okay. Yeah, I'm at the uh where we're here pretty much at the Miguel and I were Sunsetters at Sunset Park. Okay. And, you uh, at the border of Borough Park. Yeah, yeah. You know what? I I'm at as the, you like to call it the DMZ, the DMC <laughs> of Sunset Park, Sunset Park and Borough Park, and pretty much where the imaginary line of Fort Hamilton Parkway separates the Hasidic community from now, which is Chinatown, pretty much. So you're, what you're saying is a lot of double parking. Oh, dear God, <laughs> dear God. And uh, triple also, also, let's 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 give Ed this for his situation. Let's give Ed this for his situation, okay? <laughs> Badly double parking. Wait, let's it, just it, let's it, be it, specific. Let's, it, so, um, between between those two communities. The bad driving jokes write themselves. Pretty much, write them. They write themselves. Write themselves. <laughs> write themselves. That's as yeah. far as I'll go, yeah. and I'll go no further. <laughs> no, I, well, listen. I, I lived uh, where I lived in Bensonhurst was also right on the border of Borough Park. I was on 65th Street. Okay. Which literally, if you cross the street, technically you're in Borough Park. If you're going south, and I know that like there were there were two way streets, right? Where when they got to all the way down to to Borough Park, like the low 60s or the 50s they all of a sudden would turn into one-way streets. And the, and, the, and the city apparently did that so that there wouldn't be, like, constant traffic jams and accidents and double parking <laughs> because it was like the Wild West down there. So, yeah. like, they, they, they literally reconfigured the roads. All right. So, Ed, um, we're going to take a break here. Okay. And for our first uh, uh, words from friends... We're already having words with friends. I'd like to think that we're already friends, Brian. Uh, and you keep thinking that. <laughs> <laughs> see, I see, kid, you, thought, you, you thought you were slick, but see now, now my senses are up. Now I know <laughs> I'm gonna look. I'm gonna look for that stab in the dark. <laughs> um, we will come back with words from friends, and then we will get into uh, your uh, post high school career. I hope. <laughs> <laughs> and talk about uh, you know uh, wrestling, and then we are also going to get into uh, kaiju Gojira. and uh, superheroes. So we will catch everybody on the flip side. <sighs> oh, what's the matter, Miguel? Uh, I feel fat, Ed. I feel the same way too. Oh, you too, John. Yeah. You guys, you both, you guys need to get in shape, and a way to go about this is by going with JP Total Fitness. JP Total Fitness. What's that? Um, our pal Jonathan Padilla, friend of the show, runs a Brooklyn-based personal training and remote coaching service committed to leading you becoming stronger and faster. Go to jptotalfitness.com. All right. In the kitchen with Roro. R O R O. If you're looking for bite-sized bits of yumminess and need to satisfy that sweet tooth, then check out In the Kitchen with Roro on Instagram. Each item especially made by our personal friend, Rosie, here in Brooklyn. Also coming to YouTube, that's In the Kitchen with Roro.
And welcome back. And those were words from friends. Uh, now we're going to go into uh, your work. Uh, how did you exactly start off on the road towards working for a, uh, an entity like, you know, World Wrestling? And um, what's your background in terms of like the sort of the pop culture? Like, what do you gravitate towards pop culture wise? And how did they how does that dovetail with with wrestling, do you think? Well, you know, I, I mean, I was a fan of a lot of things in, in high school. Ed can tell you, like, I, I mean, I was into all the same kind of sci-fi and fantasy stuff that, that he was and all that stuff. But wrestling also, even back then, pro wrestling was was like I, I was obsessed with it, especially in the in the later years of high school. Like I just started I, it was right around the time like there were there were guys like Bret Hart and Mr. Perfect and Shawn Michaels was starting to get big. I'd watched it before that with Hulk Hogan and everything, but but I got really just obsessed with it. So when I got to college, I actually started thinking about like I, w- I would like to write about this because I, I enjoyed it so much. I never thought about like this is going to be my job or anything, but just as like some kind of a side thing. So I had started doing things like I, w- I, I, I pitched a, a wrestling column to the college newspaper. I went to Brooklyn College, so it was the Kingsman. And I was doing a wrestling column for them. And then I started covering like local independent shows in Brooklyn for the local newspaper. And they looked at me like I was nuts because this was like a local neighborhood newspaper. You know, the Brooklyn Spectator and the Home Reporter. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I was like, hey, I want to do like, a, I want to like report on wrestling for you. And they didn't get it because they thought like, well, they looked at it like, so you're just doing like free advertising for these <laughs> wrestling companies. I'm like, no, I want to do it like I'm covering it, you know, like like a sporting event. And they're like, yeah, but it's not a sporting event. So anyway, I, I convinced them to let me do it. And from there, I just started sending clippings out. I remember, like, at, at that time, there were a lot of wrestling magazines still. There was maybe, like, six, seven, eight of them monthly. And I would send stuff to all of them, Not, but I didn't get anywhere with it, nowhere. Like, I didn't even get a response from any of them. So I had sort of given up. On, on ever doing that. Um, and I got married actually not too long after um, college, like about three years after graduating college. And I'm, I'm looking for, you know, I, I had a job, but it wasn't really making a ton of money. I'm looking for a decent job because, you know, we're newlyweds. And literally it was as simple as my wife at the time. She she showed me the New York Times in print, like the, the one ads for people that remember that in the New York Times, right? And right in the middle of the one ads is this giant WWF logo. Like it was surreal. And, and they were looking for um, – they were looking for copy editors I think it was, like basically proofreaders. And I was like, well, OK. I never thought about doing that. I mean I never really had any experience doing that. But that became my foot in the door. I, I answered the ad and I drove – I was still in Brooklyn at the time. They made me come up three different times to Stamford, Connecticut. I had to drive, you know, all the way up there. And they interviewed me. Like, I think the, my first interview was maybe like October 99. And then finally by February or maybe the end of January, they offered me the job. And I, and I mean, like, I couldn't believe it. It just seemed like the most surreal thing for somebody like me because everybody that knew me they first thought of, oh, that's the kid that's crazy about wrestling and all he talks about and thinks about is wrestling. So that I would end up there, it almost seemed like it was like the script of a movie. Like it didn't mm-hmm. seem like real life. And it wound up being, you know, the greatest experience I ever had towards the end. Not as much, 
but just this incredible life experience that I'm so grateful for having, you know, and I wound up doing so much more than just copy editing. That was my foot in the door. It was like a fake it till you make it kind of thing because I had no experience copy editing. I, I had been working as a staff writer for um, uh, kind of like a reference book publisher called H.W. Wilson in the South Bronx doing like it's almost the equivalent of like encyclopedia articles, you know. And so I had never done anything like that professionally, but I faked my way in. Within a few months, I was a staff writer on the magazine. A year or two after that, I was an editor. I actually wound up being managing editor where I'm kind of like running the day-to-day, you know, production of the magazine for a while there. So it was, it was an incredible uh, it was an incredible run. And then by the fifth meeting, you had suplexed uh, Vince and, <laughs> and everything changed from that point on. <laughs> Well, I, I had I had a weird experience because the reason I didn't get the job right away, I think, is on my first interview, I really tried to play down how much of a fan I was because I had heard that um, they didn't really look kindly on that. Like they didn't want oh, okay. a bu- they didn't want like a bunch of super fans like running around gushing like they wanted like serious people. So <laughs> I, I remember they would say to me like, you know, so do you um, – do you are you like a wrestling fan? Do you watch wrestling? And inside, I'm like exploding inside, and I'm going like, you know, sometimes <laughs> I, now and then, now and then. And I actually <clears throat> called them back HR because I didn't hear anything back, and I was like, look, could I please have a do over? I actually said that <laughs> I would like to show you, you know, how much I know about your product and how much I'm into it. You know, I, I really tried to downplay it. I didn't want you to judge me. And they they heard me out. They brought me back, and I think I did a better interview. And and that's and I wound up getting the job because of that. Now I would have to say that um, one thing that I never discuss or I haven't discussed in the past almost for um, almost thirty five years of my life is that from the early eighties I was a huge wrestling fan, a huge WWF, not WWE fan, right? Right. Um, because, you know, growing up in the eighties in America as a kid, um, you all bought the, uh, the Hulkamaniac Kool-Aid. Everyone pretty <laughs> much did. And as I say on the show is one of the things that was, um, if you come from a non English speaking background, one of the things that, um, that does grab you almost universally aside from Benny Hill is pro wrestling. You don't need to know a bunch of. Uh, 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 you don't need to have a good grasp of the English language to 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 enjoy something like that, uh, and that was just sort of uh, one of those pastimes that my father and I, um, growing up, would almost gravitate towards. Like I remember watching WrestleMania with the first WrestleMania number one, two, three, four, um, and the especially the one with Mr. T with my father. <laughs> And then he ended up watching with his family too. Like, hey, you know, let me let me grab that VHS uh, from you. He goes downstairs <laughs> and watches it with his family. And you know, like, there's always that one uncle's like, oh my god, it's totally fake. It's totally fake. Yep. Who cares? Yeah. Well, okay, I'm gonna give you the flip on that. I'm gonna give you the flip. The flip is when I was a kid, and we're talking, you know, but you know, when Hogan that era, rock and wrestling on Saturday mornings. Yeah, know? me too. Same here. Okay. I had a my father's cousin Richie and like he was over 35 and he still and he still thought it was real. It was the reverse of someone saying it was the reverse of someone going like like oh man this is fake and ruining the vibe. It was 
Like, oh no, man, no, this is no, so I'm going like, okay. And you know, wrestling has a very long storied history in pop culture. Yeah. It's, it's dug in like an Alabama tick, um, you know, in so many ways because it, there is a relative low cost compared yeah. to some other things. Mm-hmm. I mean, granted now stadiums and things like that, but it isn't like, okay, we got to build a different set every week. It's like, no, if we take this on the road. We're going to, and it, it provides pageantry and it's kind of also been like when entertainment goes into new forms, there's wrestling right along with it. Yeah. TV comes, you know, TV syndication, that whole market and the 1950s and and the sixties. And that was a huge explosion there. You have Vince, you know, consolidating his stuff and his run. We have then going into cable and now we're in the streaming age and it, it, there is professional wrestling, American professional wrestling always and a somewhat pretty stable and pretty big part of like the pop culture front is that am I off or, or am I, am I at something there? No, you're right. And it kind of goes through cycles and, and like, you know, where it culturally, and we used to even just me and my friends, when I worked at WWE, j- just for kicks, we would try to like track the cycles. Cause we were all these hardcore fans like this and like uh, of the cultural aspect of it. And one of the things is like, like you're saying, so late forties, early fifties, that's like, that's like one of – it's not the first wrestling boom. A lot of people think it was the first, but it was one of the the huge wrestling booms. And it happened because – you said it. I mean it's super cheap. And TV channels were looking for what the heck can we fill these hours with. They didn't, re- they didn't have the rights to old movies yet. That hadn't really started yet. Like they didn't really – you know, so a lot of it was original content. What the heck can we do? And boxing and wrestling both – became huge on television because all you needed was like one or two cameras. You didn't have to produce the show because especially back then it was going to be happening whether the cameras were there or not. Mm. All you had to do was set up lights, cameras and, and, and get it going. And and usually the arenas would be wired for TV. So you didn't even have to like do it over and over again. It would be like the same location. And it was so cheap and easy. There was so much wrestling on TV in that era, like, like, well, my um, mom talks about it from, from when she was a kid and she, my now, dad, my dad watched it back then. Now too. let me ask you a question. Cause I, I, maybe you as the expert can get this because there is a specific wrestler I was telling Ed about the other day, um, in that gorgeous George sort of era, he was a literal Juilliard trained ballet dancer, like legit, like that was his real life. But he persona, when he came in the ring was also the ballet thing. And he used to do his like, movements he'd do his toe stuff and then he would throw the shoes his ballet shoes at the opponent i'm trying to remember what his name was and i can't does that any of that sound familiar to you this would be like 50s probably late 50s maybe early 60s the best at most it's uh it's ricky star ricky star (laughs) ricky star Star. mom that is the shout out for you because yes that is that is who it was it was ricky star and she was fascinated by him as a yes. persona, as you know, just because again, well, you know, wrestling, and you know, I would like to talk a little about somewhat of the down, the, some of the dark side, a little bit of wrestling as a genre thing, not necessarily the work or the industry, but you know, let's be honest, as you were saying before about things that you know probably wouldn't fly today. We know that what is kind of being implied there with that kind of character in the 1950s showing up, right? We know what that's about. 
uh, gay panic. Yeah. Okay, it's gay panic. And that is kind of a th- one of the things that I, you know, I grew up, like I said, 80s child like you, Hogan, all that. But, you know, eventually you come to a realization it's like, yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot of stuff that's pretty unsavory in wrestling, regardless of who's running. It doesn't matter the organization. It's just sort of like the tropes and the things that they kind of put out there. There's a lot of there's a lot of misogyny. There's a lot of racial, you know, stuff like that. Yeah, but you could say that about anything from the past. Well, yeah, 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 yeah. How about the present, even? I mean, like you know, and I mean, like it is a thing where you kind of go like, this is a thing that so many kids watch. It's very formative for people. It, do you do you have a take on that? Where there is there any been any point where as an adult where you've been a little a little uneasy about wrestling or you just like hey let you know lighten up guys it's not it's not that big no there were times where even as a kid where i was uneasy with things i could remember even going to shows in the 80s and 90s where you'd have like a gay character wrestler who was a bad guy and the the crowd would be chanting you know like uh kill that f kill that f something like that yeah and it was like they were being encouraged to do that subliminally. And I remember even being a kid, being 12, 13, and being like, I'm not cool with this. This is kind of weird. Like, I don't feel comfortable doing this. I'm not going to be shouting this out at somebody. You know, but but this is what you got to remember with that business. And I think sometimes it's like um, they're, they're maybe like kind of breaking out of it now. But the whole impetus of that business, especially in the era when they were trying to convince people that it was real, they were trying to keep people coming back. They wanted to generate, they call it heat, right? Uh As much heat, nuclear level heat as they can. They wanted to piss people off. They wanted to make people angry. They didn't care about the political ramifications of it or the social ramifications. They just didn't care. They were trying to make as much money as possible. That's all they cared about. So they were trying to rile people up. So how do you do that? What what's like the easy, cheap ways to do it? Well, like ethnocentrism, you know, patriotism, yeah, nationalism, racism. Yeah. It's like this is how you get people. Like I want to, I want this guy dead. You know what I mean? Like that's what they wanted. They wanted people riled up. But I will say this about Ricky Starr. I have to say, and I, I agree with you. There was a lot of of baiting going on, and Gorgeous George was a huge example of that. But the thing that's interesting about Ricky Starr. Yes, there was the implication that he was gay. They used to announce him as being from Greenwich Village. That was his yeah. They, thing. they knew what they were doing. <laughs> they knew what they were doing. And he'd come in the ring and he'd do his pirouettes. But here's the thing: he was the good guy. Right. He was. He, a fa- was, he was a face. What they call in, in wrestling the baby face. Right. And th- there's actually a match on YouTube that still survives. It's from Madison Square Garden. It's Ricky Starr against this guy who wrestled as Kurt Von Hess. And he was supposed to be a Nazi. <laughs> and it is one of the most absurd things you've ever seen in your life. Because this guy, he's in the ring. He's got like a Van Dyke beard. He's super serious, like a monocle. He's got like a, he, he's got an iron cross, the whole thing. And Ricky Starr is dancing pirouettes around him, <laughs> slapping him in the face. And the crowd, the crowd is loving it. And it's this bizarre kind of theater where he w- he was actually a rare example of of a character like that that um, you know the '50s audience was encouraged to get behind at a time when there wasn't really a lot of tolerance for gay people in the mainstream. Now. I don't make any pretense to think like pro wrestling was trying to change or improve society. They weren't, but, but they were willing to tap into whatever they felt like people would respond to. 
And, and so, and, and it wasn't always negative, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't always negative, but a lot of times it was no question. Now, was that to say that like, you know, the time, because I, my entry point into WWF was watching, I remember Bruno San Martino, guys like Bruno San Martino, Rocky Mavia, um, they were very, um, they were not as dramatic um, athletes, um, you know, lack of a better term. Um Yet you kind of had respect whenever Rocky came on. This is, by the way, the Rock's dad, Rocky uh, Johnson. Yeah. Rocky Johnson. Rocky Johnson. Right. And um, and when he fought, people cheered him on. But it wasn't like it was. A, it was a very muted type of cheer, as opposed to when hey, the guy from Glasgow with the um, uh, hot rod, when he came on, the uh, um, the world's greatest heel that has ever. <laughs> That is ever imagined. He has uh, come here to chew bubble gum and chew, kick ass. Chew, chew, chew bubble gum and kick ass, right? Well, well that the, perfect is an example of what makes a guy go over in that business. And, and that's the interesting part of wrestling, I think, is that especially I, I agree or disagree. When that consolidation of Vince McMahon happens and suddenly it's like here is a regular showcase for these performers – I think the the mic skill stuff becomes even it was always important but it becomes even more important and suddenly you have a guy like Roddy Hot Piper Rod. mm -hmm. who is a guy that on a on a movie set with a, a John Carpenter can go give me a moment I'm going to ad lib this and it's yeah. going to work like gangbusters you need to have that's what kind of separates a lot of those performers, it became the sort of thing where it wasn't just good enough that you could do the moves. Mm. And, you know, you, you know, so, well, you know Bruno me. San Martino is a perfect example. That guy probably was a legit wrestler, like probably could shoot. But in terms of personality, was he? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I just want to say, Brian just gave these so, so. <laughs> mezza, mezza. Mezza, mezza. <laughs> a little from column A, a little from column B. Um but like I would, you know, there is a there is a vast ocean of difference between the personality that Bruno San Martino was capable of putting across, right, and what Terry Bollet does as Hulk Hogan. You yeah, know, one thing that changed, um, you know, obviously from the beginning of wrestling on TV is when wrestlers, a lot of them, really needed to be able to talk. Uh, because you'd be on TV. Or you didn't really need that before that. And if you couldn't talk, they'd give you a manager. But for the most part, traditionally, like... <laughs> <The> Undertaker! <laughs> right. <laughs> most of the pressure, though, most of the of like the, the, the heavy lifting was given to the heels, to the bad guys. Like the, that's how it was traditionally, like where the good guys would be very understated. Like you said, Bruno San Martino or Bob Backlund. Well, Vince, I'm going to give it 110%. I'm going to do my best when I get out there, you know, like be, because they were, again, they were trying to convince people that this was real. You can't ever forget that. Right. And so the bad guys would be the ones that would be more like outrageous and crazy and great promos. And, you know, people like Captain Lou Albano, and you know that or or even like in a different way harley race or or rick flair or that that were just these superstar billy graham greatest one like these intense promos but the guy who changed that really even before hulk hogan was dusty Rhodes, ah, where you have the american dream now, now the good guy right the american dream live and in public if you will you know, he would, but he was one of the first guys where this is the good guy now who's being flamboyant over the top really sensationalistic, riling up the crowd. That wasn't really the, the job of the babyface before him. 
And Hulk Hogan, of course, took it to like the 10th power. But I remember, you know, when I this is an interesting story. When I worked at WWE one time, I was hanging out, you know, as one does with, with Shane McMahon, who was the head of our department. And he was telling me a story about, you know, when he was a kid and he was like, you know, a teenager and his dad was really like hatching this whole plan. Right. He was thinking, like, who am I going to make? Like, I need to have this superhero. Like, I need to hang the whole thing on this larger than life guy. And he wanted somebody that was an established, you know, entity. And he's looking around the business and he's trying to decide who it's going to be. And at that time, Hulk Hogan was in, was in the AWA, which mm. was this Midwestern territory. And he was already huge because of Rocky Three. So, you know, Hulk Hogan was on the list, but he wasn't the only name. And there were a few of them. Like they were considering Jimmy Snuka because he was already there. They were considering um, Kerry Von Erich, who was down in Texas at the time in, in world class. But he was considered like not totally stable. You know, he was, he, I think he had drug problems. It came down to Hulk Hogan. Or Dusty Rhodes, believe it or not. Those were the two names because his Dusty had worked for his father in the 70s. And, and he loved like the larger than life aspect of Dusty Rhodes. The one determining factor, as you could probably figure out, is he wanted somebody who really looked like a superhero. Right. And Dusty, you know, did not have the physique. So in the end, it came down to the physique that it wound up being Hulk Hogan instead of Dusty Rhodes. Well, it was also, you got to think of the times too, because it was like, what, when you, you know, dipping into superhero stuff, it's like when you see the, like a- The ultra patriotism. Okay, yeah, yeah, but I'm getting at something different. Yeah. When you look at the illustrations of, say, a Superman <laughs> from the 1950s and how they are illustrating the physique- it's like, okay, that's our idea of a strong, fit guy back then. By the time 1980s run around, we've got Schwarzenegger and mm -hmm. Stallone, and these guys are the heroes. And it's like, you put Dusty Rhodes, it's like, ah! It's like, <laughs> right. I, I would say the difference is the difference between like the fact that um, who's a... Uh, Who's Walking Tall? Uh, what's his face? The Ooh. character actor, 1970s, the movie Walking Tall. Um, um, Buford Pusser. There that you go. back then could be the hero guy, but his la the glass gasp of that kind of guy was like circa 1978, 79. By the time the 80s roll around, they're like, yeah, guy's got to have a little more definition. He's got to be a little more flamboyant. It's got to. Yeah. And I can totally see how like Dusty Rhodes would represent like a pre 1980s ideal of what like that should be. Very true, yeah. And and Hogan was like the superhero come to life that he wanted. And that's when you really started like really everyone really needed to talk really well. And the one thing I, I don't like about what, how they do it now, though, is, you know, like you're saying, Roddy Piper was such a valued asset on a movie set because he had that wrestling training where he could just go off. Right. And I think and, – and, you know, and I, I – this isn't to slight anybody. I think the newer guys now, they don't necessarily have that ability anymore because what they do is so much more scripted, very carefully scripted. There's so much more pressure because they care so much more about ratings now than they ever did. Like they really want the show to shine. So all the promos for the most part are written for these guys. Whereas back in the day, they would just say, look, this is what you need to do. Okay. Uh, Hulk Hogan, you hate Roddy Piper. You're wrestling him at the garden in two weeks. You know, he hates rock and roll. You love rock and roll. And you're going to show him that Hulkamania is the most powerful force in the universe and go. Well, there seems you know, to be this three minutes. Well, there seems to be <laughs> right, more right, of right, a, right, right. You have three minutes. Go. Well, there seems to be, there is more of a, a restriction and limitations because of the, over the years we've heard, we've all, some of us have seen the, the Jake, the sneaker, Roberts 
documentary, right? The dangers that come with this with sports entertainment. Um, and I will I will tell you over the years what have I seen? And I'll tell you this, Brian. Um, after uh, the eighties have passed, I stopped watching wrestling for a long time. Um, I got into martial arts, uh, and then it wasn't until the early two thousands. And I remember this. I was uh, my bro- my now brother in law and I worked uh, for a company called Crunch Fitness, right? And and I remember it's like, hey, uh, you know, you wanna you wanna grab some wings at at the WWE <laughs> um, sports bar or whatever they call them. I forget what they're called. And I'm like, oh, sure. And I hadn't I hadn't watched anything wrestling related in a long time. And what gets introduced uh, to me is is uh, is The Rock, right? The most electrifying man in sports entertainment history. And I'm like, wow, the the dramatics, while they're still there, they are amped up. Like they've gone to eleven on this. Yeah. Um, but well, of everything course, went up to eleven. Everything went up to eleven. But but then and then shortly after that, you hear the death of um, of Benoit, um, uh, and and all of the the all heart of a sudden. Brother. The, yeah, all Owen of a sudden, the, the vices that you, the, the, the stories come out about how, how dangerous and, and how, how much risk taking is and yeah. the steroids involved, you know? Well, just the fact that this is unlike other sort of, it's, it's got the sports aspect because these are guys who are putting their bodies on the line for these things, but it's not sports because they do not have an off season. These guys are working on the road the majority of the year, putting their body through the ringer. I mean, at least an NFL team is is like, okay, here's you know we have travel time, and you got, this is they'll do a show one night. They may only get two nights of rest, maybe not even that, mm-hmm. and they're off someplace else, from Cincinnati to Milwaukee, and on and on and on. So I mean, that's gonna raise yeah. the wear and tear and a lot of other stuff. And what I was also gonna say is like at some point, and it was quite surprising to me wait vince mcmahon he got into the he got into a two i mean uh, yeah. long gone were the days of uh you know he was just holding the mic and interviewing <laughs> the hulk and uh so what do you uh so what, what are you making today um, well, well i'm making a this this protein shake the super protein shake well you're just gonna put the uh, the eggs in there and like well, well you know you want That's the- i just want to point out that ed is he is trying to do a mcmahon he's trying to do events i can Actually, hear it I, I like the hogan that he's doing it's not bad <laughs> well let me tell you something mean gene but anyway and so vince all of a sudden he gets into the dramatics his kids get into the dramatics yeah. uh uh and then this like it looks like Vince has been juicing at some point. Um, well, he he had been even back in the eighties too, but he just didn't take his shirt off, you know. But he had been. Well, we we know that you know he came he he comes from this wrestling family. His father right. had owned uh, was was the owner. His father uh, was the founder. Yeah, was the founder, right? So, um, and then next and then all of a sudden he's involved in a TLC match I'm like wow what the hell am I watching here well it, being that right. it's his own business this you will get I gotta give this to Vince McMahon um, say anything else and Lord knows there's a lot to say that we won't go into but he is putting his butt on the line there this is his business and mm-hmm. he figures like hey if I, if <clears throat> if me hanging off the top of a ladder and you know taking a fall in the ring is going to get people to view you know to come in and you know get him excited and get him engaged that is what I will do yeah um, and, and there was a certain aspect at the time of the attitude was um hey if I can do this if I'm willing to do this <clears throat> stuff 
then there should be nothing that I ask any of you guys to do that you're going to tell me no. Because, I mean, like, I'm doing all this stuff that I'm asking you to do. That was part of it. I mean, there was also the aspect of, you know, after the thing that happened in 97 with Bret Hart and Shawn Michaels, which they call the Montreal Screwjob, where where Bret was legitimately screwed out of a title because he was going to WCW and Vince had to step in and Vince lied to him and basically said, no, 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 don't worry, you're going to beat Shawn Michaels and then you can give up the belt on TV the next day and we'll give you a nice send-off and you'll go to WCW. But in the back of his mind, Vince is going, this guy is going to screw me over. He is going to go to WCW with the title and he's going to screw me over, so I have to call an audible. And he literally just had the referee ring the bell. He had them call a finish that was not the planned finish. And he had Shawn Michaels win the title. And this became, because the internet was just starting, this became public knowledge among the fans that Vince McMahon did this. And it made him instantly into this real-life villainous figure. Like, a lot of fans didn't even know that he owned the company up until that point. And, and, and they had the bright idea at that time. They thought, let's take advantage of this. People hate you now. People know you own the company and they hate you. So we're going to turn you into the most evil bastard who ever lived. You're going to be this evil corporate monster. And then they found like the most perfect you know, rival for him in Stone Cold Steve Austin as this anti-establishment, anti-hero. Yeah. And it was like printing money, printing money. And, and, and you know what's funny is that is that it also is from a time and an era where I think there used to be the sort of uh, titan of sports or titan, either someone who was involved in the association, your, your, your Dan Stern at the NBA, or, you know, like look at the Yankees, look at look at Steinbrenner, right? Where they are a fixture in the overall story. They're not players, but they are a fixture in the overall story. And that is the WWF guys, I think, going looking like, hey, look, Steinbrenner, he he moves newspapers. New York, they can't, they love covering this guy. Right. They love covering let's integrate that aspect into it and yeah, it works. I, I would have to counter, by the way, the fur the, the perfect rival. To Vince, uh, didn't he invite respectable businessman Donald Trump? All right, we're not going to gonna go political. <laughs> to, to, I was we're going to stop you. You right were there. there. You were there. <laughs> All right. They said to us, I, I we'll, we'll hear, we will hear that story off camera. Right now, we're going to take a short break <laughs> for some words from friends. We had our bathroom basement done. Anna Maria Stanimir Gromo, a friend of the podcast, who lives out in France, she consults and she says, hey, let me design your your basement bathroom. And that's exactly what she did. She did everything um, via email, via FaceTime. Did the renderings and everything, right? Renderings and everything, a completely beautiful. I took the renderings and uh, hired a contractor and they are currently putting, the, as we're speaking, putting the finishing touches on my basement. And it looks fantastic. It looks great. Servicing clients, domestic international, a master's here to help you through your different phases to transform your space into a reflection of you. Go to masterdesign.com. That is a master spelled A-M-A-S-T-A design. I love our logo. No, really. I love our logo. The To Be Continued Fanboy Podcast logo was provided to us by friend of the show, Matt Sulkowski, who also runs MSD Studios. 
And what does Matt do at MSD Studios? He provides positive reinforcement for your brand. Located in Philadelphia, Matt has worked with clients of all sizes and has helped them to focus on designs for campaigns, rebrands, and new brands. Get in touch for your next project, MSD Studios. That's msdstudios.com. And those were words uh, from friends. Uh, we're going to shift uh, gears into your, uh, your, your, your book on wrestling, FAQ. Now, what was... Pro what Wrestling was, FAQ. Pro, Pro wrestling, wrestling FAQ. What was your uh, impetus for writing it? Uh, and what were the things that maybe you learned while writing it that surprised someone like you who was even a, a fan? Well, so just to start with that, I had written my first book while I was still with WWE. It was called WWE Legends, but it was really their licensed book, and I didn't really have full freedom. Pro Wrestling FAQ was the first time that I really had the chance to just tell the story my way. So I always had in the back of my head, and people would always tell me this, Bri, you know so much about wrestling. You should write like the ultimate book about the whole history of, of the business and everything about it. And I always had this in the back of my head to do. And then I ran into this guy, his name is Mike Edison. And he had been an editor and a writer in some wrestling magazines in the 80s. There was a magazine called Wrestling's Main Event that he was one of the editors on. And I got to know him from this show that we were doing together um, in New York at, at 92Y Tribeca at the time, it was like a it was like a video clip show, you know, like a comedy show. We would play comedy clips of movies and shows, and 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 kind of riff on them. And every one was a different theme. And so uh, we had done. It wasn't my project. It was a friend of mine named Kevin Moore, and he had done a wrestling themed one. So he invited me to come on. He invited Mike to come on. We got to know each other, and Mike said the same thing. He's like. Holy cow, like you know so much about wrestling. He's like, listen, I work for a company now called Hal Leonard, and they published my last book. I wrote like a wrestling memoir, and they have a series called FAQ, which was sort of like the old, if you remember the old like um, for dummies. Okay, you know, yeah, yeah, that? yeah. Like everything for dummies or the other one, like the complete idiot's guide to this, that, or the other thing, right? It was like that where it was all these pop culture topics. So you had like Rolling Stones FAQ, whatever, Star Wars FAQ, whatever the hell it was. And I said, all right, guys, like I'm your man. I want to do pro wrestling FAQ. At first they wanted to make it WWE FAQ, which in hindsight probably would have sold better. But but I said, let's make it everything. Why, is it, why does it have to just be WWE, you know, like the pro wrestling FAQ? And so that gave me the opportunity. This was like 2014, 2015. To, to write that book that I finally had in the back of my head. And it was like, and not to brag, but I mean, my research was very minimal. I did a bunch of interviews, you know, with people that I knew in the industry, but most of it was just like in my head. In the back of your head. <laughs> it was just being vomited out. Like I finally <laughs> had the chance to be like, yeah, I'm at the keyboard, like just getting it all out of my head. But, but, but I did learn a lot still writing it. Like, like there was a lot that I, that I learned specifically about the lives of the individual wrestlers. Like I, um, I, there's like capsule profiles in the book on major stars. And one of them, which I did on the original Sheik in that book, not the Iron Sheik, but the original Sheik, it was so fascinating to me. I wound up being so interested in the guy's life that the book I'm writing now is a biography of him, which grew out of that. Wow. You know, just building off of what I wrote. Now, does that also um, include the – because – 
pro wrestling is not just an American pastime, but it's also right. very international. Japan has a rich culture yeah. <laughs> within Me- the, the, um, uh, Mexico has a very huge, I- I- very huge cultural impact. On uh, do you include that in in the book? Yeah, I want I wanted to make it as global as I could. I had to cut so much because I you know I had so much in my head. Like I had to cut out and I, I uh, seven planned chapters more than what I wound up doing. And so you know I didn't get to do you know because also in part Europe two? there's a sorry. Are you gonna do a part two? I would love to do a revised version if they ever asked me to, and I could add to it because I never really got to go into, for example, like Europe. Uh, has a strong wrestling tradition in the UK, in Germany, in Austria, places, Australia, New Zealand. But I did focus, I did, I, I have a chapter on Japanese wrestling, which which they called Pururesu over there. And I have um, a chapter on the Mexican tradition, which is Lucha Libre. And in those countries, uh, especially in days gone by, maybe not as much today, pro wrestling there became bigger than it ever did in the United States. And I'm even talking about in the Hulk Hogan era. It became like culturally massive on a scale that we can't even imagine. There are Japanese wrestling (laughs) matches that were televised in the 50s and 60s that did higher ratings than the Super Bowl gets today. And and in in Mexico, El Santo, who was like their folk hero, oh, yeah. he was like he was like John Wayne. He was like Babe Ruth. There wasn't a human being in Mexico that did not revere El Santo. I mean, Brian, they took Brian, it just just g- give you an idea. Uh, so you know, a big part of those Mexican, you know, Mexican wrestlers became movie stars. Yes, you Blue know, Demon. I mean, they, they had all sorts of their own themes. El Santo, of course, is a big one, Run and of for course, government. Yeah. The other part is that you know, as we were talking about, you know, cheap things for syndication TV, things like that. As you can imagine, the the offerings for Spanish language stuff in the United States were pretty slim, and so. Forgot you. We're all New. We're all we're all New York guys here, so we all know Channel Forty One and Channel Forty Seven. <laughs> Telemundo. <laughs> you know what I mean. And and so when back in the day, heavy in rotation are those movies. So now my dad's Puerto Rican. I'm Puerto Rican. You know, my dad was born on the island. One day, Carlos Colon. I'm I'm watching Mystery Science Theater Three Thousand, <laughs> and they're doing. The translation of one of the El Santo films, which was like Samson versus the Vampire Woman, right? That's right, Samson. They called them. Yeah, it sticks instead of El Santo, and you know, and of course, it's already goofy because it's wrestlers versus vampires, and then you add in the dubbing <laughs> part of it that makes it even worse. But let me tell you, okay, my dad, I, I used to watch Mystery Science Theater at home all the time, and a lot of those were movies that him and my mom had seen as kids, you know, that they had paid money to go see. Hey, here's a cheap sci-fi movie on Saturday night. And he just love it. He laughed. He, he, laugh. Was he offended when they were making fun of El Santo? I bet <laughs> he was like, "You can't make fun of El Santo." I was like, "I was dead." It's he's he's right now a man with a bare chest and a mask is you know is just throwing torches at these Mexican women dressed as vampires. I don't know where your reverence comes from, but we were talking. We'll get into this when we talk about the kaiju. I was talking to Ed on the car. I said, "You know, here's the thing." Some of the stuff when you just get ingrained into you as a kid, even as an adult, when you intellectually understand, you can parse through what quality is and blah, blah, blah. There's always going to be a part that you can never scrape away there where there's going to be that level of almost childlike reverence or respect for it. And it's like, I don't care what anyone says about Godzilla. For some reason in the back of my head, I will always love and have respect 
respect for Godzilla. I don't know why. And it's sort of this, you know, it's the same way my dad was. He saw Santo and they were making fun of El Santo. And he was like, all right, pump your, pump your brakes, son. Pump your brakes. <laughs> I, I went to my, my wife uh, her, at her job at the, where she worked. It was a, like a restaurant. And she was the event planner there. And they had a Halloween party once. And I went as Santo. I have a Santo mask. It's over here somewhere. Where the hell is it? I don't know where it is right now, but I have a Santo mask. And I, but I dressed up. I was like formal Santo. Like I had like, you, you know, like when he dressed up in the suit. You get the mask. Yeah, for whatever reason, El Santo in these movies is like going out to a restaurant and he's got like a, a tux. I had like a silk tie, like a silver tie. And, like, and I'm wearing a silver mask. And I showed up thinking, like, no one's even going to no. know who I am, but it's fun. And I'm going to tell you something. And, you know, this isn't the stereotype, but this is a fact of life. You know, he was like a, a cultural icon in Mexico. I showed up there. Every guy in the kitchen came <laughs> running. And I know this sounds funny, but it's true. They came out and they were like, that's Santo! <laughs> they were going to start. It was like the scene in Return of the Jedi with C-3PO and Ewoks. <laughs> That's what it was like. You would think that I was really him, you know? It was amazing. Well, look, it is, it's telling because whenever you're watching uh, these matches on, on El Telemundo, uh, the, the Catholic nuns always have front row seats. Well, El praying. Santo is fighting the forces of evil, <laughs> well, and they're praying for right. the the hero well, that's well, up on that's well, up on the canvas. Here's the thing: at least the nuns are just praying. Brio can tell you, you know, from those old matches, those old women in the front rows would get themselves involved in the matches. <laughs> yes, they could not. Yes, defer, they would. They could not. Unchancla <laughs> was out in their hands. If the, if El Santo was on the ropes, you better watch out. There might be a 56 year old, you know, Mexican chick that might. You know, she might jump in there and get in on it. They would, they would hit him with the handbag. You know? <laughs> there was one, there was one famous, legendary little old lady. They called her Hatpin Mary, and I don't remember where she, it might have been Chicago. I forget where it was. It was a big wrestling city. She was known, and you know, the women in those days they would wear those elaborate hats. She would take the pin out of her hat. <laughs> hat pins are no joke. They're like. <laughs> And he would jab the villain. They <laughs> went by. Yeah. See again, that's that that line between fantasy and reality with the stuff. For whatever reason in the culture, is pretty fluid. <laughs> At Pin Mary, yeah. <laughs> now, um, I I'm happy to hear that you you know you you the book you know had a wide range was off into you know Japanese wrestling, European wrestling, you know that that th those scenes. Um, can you tell me something? Did you learn anything in the, in your, you know, in the research or just your general for the book of that interplay between where, as I said, reality and fantasy, where wrestling is, has its roots in actual combat of stuff, you know, wrestling yeah. as a martial art, pancreation, if you want to go back to ancient Greece, every culture has their own versions of it. The fur, the only socially acceptable form of violence as, as so I've learned. Over the years. <laughs> but, you know, in the sense of like, think about this um, in Japan, one of the interesting things is like, you still had the, the, um, the culture of legitimate European influenced grappling stuff. And guys over there would like, no, hey, this is like our judo. This is like our jujitsu. I will. And, you know, you know this. This is a weird thing where a guy like Ken Shamrock started mm. out as going to Japan to work wrestling 
gets into the shoot, gets into the real stuff, and then comes back to America to become part of that the beginning of UFC. Now, is uh, yes. any of any stories from that that stand out to you? Any ideas about that? That uh, oh, oh yeah, no, that was a big part of the the journey of this book. Was one of the big unanswered questions, and even I could not answer it. Was people always wonder when did it go from being an actual competitive sport to being a show, right? And the answer is complicated because you know it depends on who you ask. So, so uh, you know, wrestling obviously has been around since the beginning of time. I mean, it's like one of the oldest sports, wrestling, swimming, and running. Those are like the big three. And But really, when you get into the, the origins of what we now look at as pro wrestling is, you're talking about like 19th century, really, like around the time of the Civil War. And um, you've got the same way that baseball grew out of the soldiers just kind of being really bored and not knowing, you know, what to do. And they just killed time playing baseball. It was the same thing with wrestling, where you had a tradition of real wrestling and people that were trained to wrestle. And and it, and it wound up coming out of the Civil War. You wound up getting like a combination of they would be wrestling in carnivals, right, where people would challenge uh, spectators to wrestle, and if you could beat me, you know, you win like a hundred dollars or whatever, like that kind of thing. And then there was the beginning of like wrestling as a sport that people would watch, like literally starting out, you know, in the back of a in the in the back room of a of a saloon or something, you know. And 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 it started out like a lot of sports did in with betting, and people would gamble. And very early on, though, the thing is it started to become corrupted. That's the thing. In the beginning, it wasn't really like we're performing, we're putting on a show. It was this is a corrupt and fixed sport, right? And boxing went down that road too. Boxing had a lot of struggles in those early days with fixing. But I think even when you – by the time you get to the beginning of the 20th century, believe it or not, wrestling is already very largely um, not legitimate. But the difference is – they, if you looked at it, it looked a hundred percent real. These were guys that they they weren't performing. They knew how to wrestle, but they just had already decided who was going to win because they they were trying to work the uh, the, the the gamblers. They were trying to work. Right, they were trying yeah. to make money by tricking people. Really, was that if I'm remembering correctly, that was the Gold Dust Trio. Was that well the gold the Gold Dust Trio pops up in the 20s and they're really important because they were the ones and that's um there was the wrestler at strangler lewis right there was the promoter who was a guy named billy sandow and then there was the creative guy who was a guy named toots mont and those three guys in the 20s they basically hatched the idea of what net we now know as wrestling where they said look okay Wrestling is being exposed now as being fake. People are starting to know that, and they're not going to want to gamble on it anymore. And if, and if we have people gamble on something that's rigged, we're all going to go to jail. So we have to turn it into something different. And also, uh, it, it, it was falling out of favor because it was considered very boring. When you have two guys in a legitimate wrestling match, they could be rolling around on the floor for yes, like three as, hours. As martial artists, and, we know grappling is not act actually all that right. exciting to watch if you don't know the ins, ins right. and out of it, yeah. And the, the business side of it was dying because it was considered very boring. So they were the guys in the 20s who came up with the idea of saying, okay, we're going to like 
pizzazz this up a little bit. Like we're going to introduce moves that aren't necessarily like pure grappling. Like we're going to allow striking. We're going to, you know, we're going to like body slam people, things you would never do in a real fight. They just wouldn't work. Like we're going to, you know, suplexing and all this kind of thing. We're going to start doing that. And, and, and on top of that, they came up with the idea. Okay. We're going to try to, it wasn't as over the top as it, as it is now, but we're going to have like, a sympathetic guy and a guy that the people don't like. And we're going to try to like build up that, that angle between the two of them. And, and we're going to take it on the road. We're going to like do the same match in like every town. And they're not gonna know, <laughs> right. They're not, we're going to have like a troop of wrestlers. Cause before that, it wasn't really like that. It was like each match. It was like boxing where you'd make a match and, it, and that would be it. They had the idea of, we're going to have a group of guys. They work for us. We take them on the road. We do these package shows where it's like seven, eight, nine matches. Like, you know, we have good guys. We have bad guys. We have a match that has a time limit. It can't go longer than 45 minutes or an hour. We'll have more exciting moves, you know. Uh, and they invented it. I mean, they invented what we now call what what now the, 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 the art form of pro wrestling is and in the 20s. If you look at wrestling before the 20s and after the 20s, it's two completely different things. They gave up on trying to uh, – the fans, a lot of the fans still thought it was real. But they gave up on trying to trick the entire – you know, public that this was a real sport. They gave up on that and they said, okay, we're going to make this a little more cartoony and entertaining, you know, and, and, and uh, turn it into something different, you know, but they still wouldn't admit that it wasn't real. They would never publicly admit that. Now, um, let me ask you about that. And, and also, uh, again, I'm, this is interesting to me because as a martial artist, part of it, there is, there was still concurrent with that. A, still a culture in that world of guys who really did know their stuff. I think the yes. biggest name in my head oh, is always going to come, is always going to be Stu Hart and Stu Hart's sure. dungeon, right? And the fact yeah. that, that that old man could submit guys 40 years younger than him, you know, on the mat. Right. And so it's like, how much is that? Do you, by the time you were involved, was any of that still evident in the world of, of pro wrestling or has it become something that is completely lost now? Well, Stu Hart came up in the thirties and forties as a kid. And the thing is, especially even back then, even though those guys were performing and they were not shooting with each other, the thing is every one of those guys still needed to know how to take care of themselves because it really was the wild west. And there were situations where if you, even as recently as that era where you would have a guy and they would go, listen, um, you're going to, you know, you're facing the champion tonight and he's going over, he's winning and the blah, blah, blah. And the guy in his head is going, really? I don't think so. And he would shoot. <laughs> it happened where he would, he would, he would shoot. He'd win the belt. He wasn't supposed to. And he'd take it on the road. And there was nothing promoters could do about it because if they called him out publicly, they were admitting <laughs> that it wasn't real. So they would have to play ball and be like, oh, my God, how do we get the title off this guy? And it was a nightmare. But but so they needed every and, – and the reason that would happen is if you had a champion who couldn't really wrestle. So they were very careful. Like there was a guy in the 20s named Wayne Munn who was the first like – big football star that they brought into wrestling. He was huge, but he had no idea how to wrestle. And he was one of those guys where they put the title on him, he got screwed over, and then they lost a lot of business. So 
the idea was everyone needs to know how to take care of themselves. You need to know how to be able to shoot, even if you're never called on to do it, you know. And every now and then there would be a shooting match, but it was super, super rare. And most of the time they happened behind closed doors because you wanted to always control the outcome. Right. That's how you, right. you, you, you know, you had your business. So like sometimes they would go, all right, we're going to settle this between you two guys. We want to see who's better, but we're not going to do it for the fans. Like we're, we're going to do it for <laughs> ourselves. We're going to do it here in this gym and we're going to settle it. And that would happen a lot. But but then it, it eventually got to the point and to talk about like what you're saying when I came to work there, by the time you get to like the 70s and even the 80s, that that had fallen out of favor because the thinking was the almost the opposite. We don't want guys, a lot of guys who really know how to shoot because they're dangerous mm. and, and we can't control them and they could do whatever they want. They would have a certain select guys and a lot of times they weren't even the top guys. They used to call them policemen. Mm. And they were there to keep people in line. And everyone knew these were the guys that knew what they were doing. And it was like, if you don't play ball with us, you're gonna we're gonna put you in there with this guy. He's our policeman. And you're not gonna like how that goes. You know, and there's a he possibility like, something could get broken or bruised. Right. And, yeah. But it does he help went, like when you're having, let's say, oh, we're gonna assign Kurt Angle, uh Olympia uh, uh, Olympic champion Kurt Angle onto the scene and let's Build him up and make him a champion. Oh yeah, and let's see some of the moves. Let's one of his finisher moves is an actual, you know, submission. Um, yeah, a Greco-Roman submission move, right? You know, and um, again, like it's about, and all of a sudden there's this trend of we're gonna sign these guys and they're gonna play ball, right? It's no, yes. uh, the, uh, we're gonna honor their their personalities, their um, uh, what they're known for. I mean, uh, Ronda Rousey, just what was it? She's already three years on the scene at this point as a um, uh, in the pro wrestling. Yeah, yeah she's, been, she's this... been out of it for a while, though, because she she's she I think she's pregnant, but yeah. she's right. been out. But there of is it. that sort of weird interplay where you have now this rival thing mm -hmm. that has always been linked, you know, shoot free fighting has always right. had its connection to the, the the entertainment aspect and here we are again where there's crossover legitimacy between, looking for legitimacy between both of those sides you know it's, so what it's, happened what happened with mma and mma really like takes off in the 90s right is there was a lot of crossover and a lot of the early mma guys were also pro wrestlers dan severn mm -hmm. ken shamrock Brock these were guys Lesnar. that were accomplished pro wrestlers who didn't really have an outlet before mma they they were guys who in an earlier era they would have been like the Ed Strangler Lewis's of their day, but there really wasn't a place for that anymore. So when MMA came around, they jumped on it. Now, the thing about MMA, there were a lot of pro wrestling people involved because the thing in the beginning, because the thinking was what MMA was originally supposed to be, what it was originally conceived at was this is what pro wrestling was before it became a show. And we're going to try to get back to that catch wrestling style that they used to do and but, but but the effect that that had on pro wrestling is actually profound because before MMA there was a large segment of the wrestling fan base pro wrestling that really was into the athletic part of it and really believed in you know looking for the real stuff and was into seeing like who's the toughest guy who's the greatest like real wrestler who could really win in a fight and MMA siphoned away all those fans because if you wanted to see a real fight 
why the hell am I watching this stuff? This mm. is a real fight. I'm going to watch this. And so what was left behind with pro wrestling were really the people that were only interested the in the, theat- the theatricality aspect of it, the fun. They didn't really care about anymore who could really win in a fight, who's really the mm. toughest guy. That was a big part of the wrestling fan base before MMA. And now it's not really anymore. And that and that's really when you see at that same moment pro wrestling and Vince McMahon and those people admitting publicly this is a show. This is not real because they had to because they had to set it up as the alternative to MMA and something completely different, you know, because, yeah, to, to Titans meeting in the ring, you know, making that decision is a, a visceral appeal. And if it's going to be scripted now, that dovetails and will dovetail nicely after we come back of these words from friends into kaiju superheroes and all the rest, because, uh, for all for all the uh, fanboys out there, don't don't get it twisted. There's there's not as much to some they're one and the same. <laughs> there's not as much differences as you would like to think. So we will cover that when we come back after these words from friends. Hello out there, everyone. My name is Miguel Alejandro Velez. And Edward Ding here. And we are the host of To Be Continued, a fanboy podcast. As anyone knows, we are based out of the Park Slope Brooklyn Pancake Studios, providing to us by one Jonathan Vergara. And what can they expect to get out of Pancake Studios? And here at Pancake Studios, covering your audio recording, production, mixing, and mastering needs. And Jonathan is a complete wizard when it comes to these things. Uh, we Coming this month, it would be our third year anniversary. And uh, he's made a home for us here and continues to produce quality. Look no further. Pancake Studios. Go to www.pancakestudios.net. All right. We're back on the other side of Word with Friends. Uh, we're going to... Not really shift gears. We're just going to take a, a sim- we're going to take a similar pathway uh, on the map. It's just going to be a slightly different route, I think. Uh, one of the interesting things about you know Ed and I, we're huge into genre works. We're big into superheroes, um, big into kaiju. You know all that stuff. We grew up in that era. Ed, not so much kaiju, yeah, but it's not. So it much. is a part of almost <laughs> a guy's our age. It's always was always in the background. You know, Channel 11, WWOR, uh, you know, WPIX in New York City, you know, constantly when we were growing up is you were going to get the Japanese monster movies. You're going to be introduced to Rodan. You're going to be introduced to Gamera. You're going to get that. I always like to point out to Ed that, you know, you remember, I'm sure, Channel 9, WWOR, Thanksgiving. We were not. (laughs) My family was not a football family. We didn't watch football. No, mine either. But what did we watch on Thanksgiving? Monster Zero. We watched Monster from Islands the, from the from no it, it's it's Kong time. <laughs> it's, it's Kong. It's, oh, it's Kong. Okay. It's, uh, they would have they show you the original Kong. All right. Son right. of Kong, Mighty Joe Young as like a palate cleanser, and then yeah. Kong versus Godzilla. <laughs> That's right. And that was every year for God, 20, 25 years. I remember that that was like the tradition. Yeah, it it was like back then. They would be like annual TV traditions for movies. Like I remember Wizard of Oz around Easter time yeah. every year. March of the Wooden Soldiers. Right. My, of course, all the Christmas ones. Yeah. But Thanksgiving was monster movies. I don't know if you remember too, a lot of times, it, and it was, right, Channel 9, a lot of times it would spill over into the day after Thanksgiving where that day then you'd get like – Godzilla versus Mecha Godzilla, right, Godzilla yeah. versus the Smog <laughs> Monster, Godzilla's Revenge. Like it would be 
crazy, like a two-day insanity. And we would watch them every year. Every <laughs> year. <laughs> and like you said, one. it's the sort of thing where it's the next day. It's like, well, you're off, you're probably off of school. Right. You know, families are, you know, you know, they're traveling. Like, you're not doing anything the day after Thanksgiving. You're just sort of like nursing your sore stomach. And hey, Let let's you. let's turn on the tube and let's watch some some guys in some some rubber suits beating the crap out of each other. Well, I often tell Miguel, you know, because I'm not a particular uh, necessarily a fan of the genre of the kaiju, kaiju uh, genre, but as you say, because these uh, shows were only presented during the holidays, I would stay at the time. My my best friend growing up. Um, I stayed over at his place um, in Brooklyn. I was I was I'm from originally from Jersey, and uh, we'd wake up the next morning and it was kaiju all day, all the time. Um, and again, like my memory, I had to jog my memory last night, right? So Miguel is at, is telling me is is describing to me the the Jet Jaguar um, and a uh, team up, right? Uh, a movie uh, which is Godzilla is versus Godzilla Megalon. Megalon, right? And uh, you can find the fight on YouTube, not the whole entire movie. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my god! I, I it transported me back to when I was like eight, seven years old. And two two seconds, we we both like he goes, and then he did that move, and I said, you're talking about the mood when he's, and I'm talking about like, of course, everyone remembers the big tail slide. <laughs> All right, it's, it's, okay. it's a drop kick. It's, it's a, a drop. Okay, it's a drop. Oh, he wants to be fucking. No, you want to be technical about it. All right, but like I always, I he was going. It's like and so. Then Godzilla shows up and it says, and then he slowly circles around to Jet Jaguar and does this kind of like, "Are you okay, because, buddy?" Move because with his like, hand. Jet Jaguar is yeah. being double teamed, right? <laughs> Right. And and then and then like Godzilla comes into the fray as if he just jumped in jumped into the canvas, like you yes. know, uh, jump uh, hopped on top of the ropes, and he's like and he's staring down the other two, and and slowly walks over to Chet Jaguar and it's like, like hey you okay, buddy? you okay man you okay brother all right everything now be- this is the thing you easily. And when they was on Mystery Science Theater three thousand, you go right to the wrestling jokes. They write themselves. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah. you know, it's like, oh, oh my God, Godzilla. Godzilla's got him off the top rope. Oh my God. He has cut him in half off of Mount Fuji. Who is going to stop this? You know what I mean? It's like it plays into that very easily. And there is that a visceral appeal of two titans meeting of, you know, and of course it's now it's a genre work. Now it's total fantasy. And we can do anything, you know. Well, well, granted, there's a lot of fantasy in pro wrestling. Like, yeah, there's no one getting hit in the face with a sledgehammer who is going to be fighting again the next week, okay? Right, correct. However, but that's the thing. You can go even more over the top because it's like, well, who are our opponents? Well, one's a gigantic radioactive lizard and, the I don't know, the other one's a three-headed monster from Venus. Like, you can go all out. Um, like, what is your take on sort of the crossover of what that appeal is and the fact that they kind of were also on the same time, it would be very common for a kid to be like, I'm watching a monster movie at like three o'clock, but then at four or five, you know, in the afternoon, I also watch some wrestling. So right. your take. Well, it has to be said, even in Japan at the time, that was a conscious thing. That's not just a coincidence. That's not like, hey, wow, this reminds me of wrestling. It was very conscious. In Japan, in that era, 60s and 70s, especially late 60s, early 70s, Professional wrestling is the hottest thing on television, okay? You had Antonio Inoki, you had Giant uh-huh. Baba, uh-huh. 
and you had a few other guys, Russia Kimura, and just these, like, professional wrestling was real life. I mean, even though it wasn't really real life, but, I mean, to the fans, it was real life superheroes, you know, fighting each other. And the popularity, like I was saying, the ratings for wrestling on TV in Japan, like, I couldn't even explain to you. There were matches that were doing, like, the rating was, like, 60 Okay, like if you know anything about TV ratings, like like you're happy if your rating is eight. You know what I mean? <laughs> and, and no, really. And the rating is like 60. And so they were consciously doing this. There's no question, especially the fight in Godzilla versus Megalon is a great example. That's a tag team match. It's just a tag team match. It's Godzilla and Jet Jaguar versus Megalon and uh, Gigan, I think it is, right? It's yes. Gigan. Good old and, and that is a total – you almost are looking for them to tag in and out. <laughs> <laughs> At the end of the fight, if you remember, Godzilla yes. and Jet Jaguar shake, shake hands. This is a giant lizard, okay? <laughs> it's, it's like a – his brain is the size of like a baseball, you know? And he's shaking hands with this robot. It's a tag team match. No question about it. Uh, yeah, that is uh, – you know, the, and that is something that is, again, the visceral child and like nine-year-old lizard brain part of us. I think I think somebody gets suplexed in that too. Yeah, the- no, yeah. He's, <laughs> well, um, I think one of my – what I was talking about is I believe it's Godzilla's Revenge. The That's one the with, one the, where it's the, the little kid on, yeah, was the, little kid on yeah. the island. So Ed was, he, he's kind of very vague on it. And I said, I said, yeah. And then Godzilla does this move. And I said, oh, do you mean the one where he judo flips the bully monster and he's got red right. hair and everything? And he was like, yeah, I was going like, yeah, yeah, yeah. there is Gabbara. this sort of gap. Yeah, Gabbara. Yeah, thank you. I always get it mixed up because I go like, not to be Gamera, confused with Gamera. Gamera. Right. I was like, well, he's, he's the one, he's the one, uh, he's the one who's like, <laughs> <laughs> So now that is a formative thing. It's obviously the what the appeal is, you know, to you as a kid and, you know, it carries over. And again, it's this sort of visceral crossover of stuff. And here is my issue with some of the kaiju. And I want you to convince me. I want you to convince me and make the case because I'm a Showa era grow up kid, right? That's what I was available to me. I didn't even see... I saw the original Godzilla, the the 56 version, like maybe when I was like 12 or 13. Otherwise, yeah. I'm seeing all of the later Showa stuff where it's Godzilla champion of the, you know, the universe and, you know, helping out humanity, blah, 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 blah. You get to the Heisei era stuff. And dude, I, just to give you an idea of what kind of a Godzilla fan I was as a kid compared to where I am as an adult... Godzilla 1985 was my birthday movie. <laughs> when that was released in the U.S., uh, oh, 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 Brian, I, I'm surprised I didn't share this with you yet. Brian, the greatest gift my mother ever gave me was the Godzilla with the shooting arm and the tongue wow. fire thing. Wow, you got uh, that? I still have it. Wow. <laughs> it's at my mom's. But I, 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 I was like, I don't want this to be destroyed. I'll I want sell to sell that and this. buy a motorcycle. That, that guy, that dude, Godzilla fought them all. He fought the Transformers. He fought G.I. Joe. He, you know, he was, he was, and he was king of the monsters. I didn't have anything. Godzilla protected me. Godzilla protected me from Ridley Scott's alien. <laughs> because my uncle was working in. Times Square at the time and around 7980 when that came out, they had the giant uber detailed uh, xenomorph. Okay. 
That film freaked me out. The toy freaked me out. For whatever reason, my uncle thought, eh, the kids are going to love this. He bought them for everyone. I had it, and I was like, I'm, I'm shaking in my boots. I don't want this thing in my room. But thank God Godzilla was there. Thank God Godzilla was there. So it's, you know, there is this strong, but as I've gotten older, I can't say that necessarily the Showa stuff holds up for me outside of the, the, again, the fun visceral pro wrestling entertainment part. And then the Heisei stuff, I just, like they've been recommended to me hand over fist by people whose opinions I trust. And every time I try to watch them and see what they are, what they're seeing, I can't, I, I can't quite, like, well, there's good stuff in them, but I can't necessarily full throated, like, oh yeah, the, I want watch. So, so convince me, convince me, bro. Well, well, here's the thing. Um, I'm partly with you, but not 100%. So, like, me, if, if I have a choice, if I'm, like, kicking back at home and I want to watch a Godzilla movie, I'm always going to gravitate towards 60s, 70s show of Godzilla every time. Not every time, but, I mean, most of the time. But the thing is, I, I love them all. I have them all. What happened in the 80s and 90s with the Heisei was a reaction to that, right? So it's like it's 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 like if you think about it, it's the same thing as what happened in the 80s and 90s with Batman was a reaction to the 60s TV show. Uh. So it was like we we you know we got into this rut of where it started out really serious and then it became more silly and goofy and something for kids. And now we'd like to get back to the more like heavy serious tone. And that's not for everybody, right? So like I prefer as a kid i preferred you know because that's what i had was that lighter more fun tone and the the older i get and ed i think we've talked about this occasionally when it comes to superhero stuff and the older i get the more i tend to more prefer the stuff that's more fun that's more lighthearted, that's not as heavy like you know when i was a teenager in the 80s and 90s you know i was like conditioned to hate the Batman TV series because that was the show that okay, like yeah. made superheroes into a laughing stock, and that's why they could never make you know they, the studios would never greenlight a superhero movie because they were seen as ridiculous. The older I get, the more not only do I love the Batman TV show, but it has started to become my preferred version of Batman <laughs> is the Batman TV show, and, and it's like, but but you got to remember the Heisei stuff was reacting to that and it's not for everybody it was like all of a sudden now it's very serious and it's very like if you ever noticed it's very militaristic it's very much about like oh here's this amazing new weapon we've created yeah. and let's see what it could do here oh this new missile is fantastic and here's this new like armor we've built and you know the old ones weren't really about that you had like hippies dancing and like <laughs> weird, yes weird creatures Godzilla versus up. the smog monster yeah right the smog monster it became much more like dark and heavy and very – And a lot of people loved that. A lot of people were like, this takes me back to the 50s Godzilla. I kind of dig this. And there were a lot of people for me like I enjoy them, but I don't go back to them as much because they're just not as much fun. And you know, uh, just for me personally, like I, Godzilla to me should be fun. And I mean – except what I will say, the original film you know, is hands down it's a in terms of – of, of movie quality is the best film. I almost put it in a different category. It's like in its own class by itself. When I show people that movie, they're, they're floored. They're like devastated because they're expecting, you know, suplexes and drop kicks. And, giant <laughs> and that movie is a horror film. It is an out and out. And it's got the classic horror, horror theme, the, dun, dun, yes. the really deep notes. Yes. 
But it's like to me, that's in a whole other yeah, universe. The presentation like, I don't of even Godzilla in it. that first film is horrifying. Yes, and I and I love it. I, I think it's <laughs> you know it's the best overall movie you know cinematically, especially of the Japanese series that was ever done by far. But but you know it, it's uh, it just turned into something else later on, and I kind of liked what it turned into and and I didn't you know I I'm not the hugest fan of trying to make Godzilla super duper serious. In fact, I I enjoyed um I enjoyed I I like the legendary movies especially I I thought King of the Monsters still I I like that one better than Kong because it's just so colorful and so much more like taking just joy and pleasure in just this monster action. It reminded me Godzilla King of the Monsters reminded me w- w- the impression I got from it was this is the perfect big budget 21st century Hollywood version of a 60s and 70s Showa Japanese movie to me. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. Now, and now here's the thing. I I, I told Miguel that um uh especially after watching the the Jet Jaguar fight um, yesterday on YouTube in preparation for the show, um, it's hard not to watch these things with obviously with irony. You can't watch these things out of irony. And um, but and I do recall that at some point in my youth, um, having Godzilla just jammed into my throat, and then Gamera comes into the scene. Right, Gamera <laughs> is kind of would we say is an offshoot of that? Right, where he's a turtle from outer space. And no, 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 no. Oh, no, no. Gamera, I, Bri will be the one to probably correct you on this one. Gamera has the most ridiculous origin create, cre- created by the Atlanteans. Correct me if I'm wrong, Bri. Yeah, it, it developed over time over the course of the movie. Originally, he was just like, I think he's like buried in Antarctica or something originally, but you didn't really know where he came from. But I mean, but but then the the powers that exhibited were because pretty much we what we wanted to see from Godzilla is we want him to 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 use his laser beam that shoots out of his mouth. That's what we want to see, you know. And um, some of the you know the the pacing of the dare I say wrestling moves that he has when Godzilla is <laughs> fighting some of these other these other monsters on Monster Island. Um, and there's Gamera a guy gave us that, right? <laughs> well, let's put it this way. I, you know, let's be honest here. There's a guy doing judo moves inside of a giant rubber suit. <laughs> All the kudos in the world to that man. He cannot see where he's going or what he's doing. He's incredibly hot and uncomfortable, but he's he's gonna he's gonna grab King Ghadira by the tail and he's gonna try and you know. Well, and, and, and I'm remembering these things in drips and drabs, right? Because um, uh, all of a sudden. On YouTube, I'm like, wait, Gamera's doing a weird somersault thing on the bar, you know? I'm like, why is he doing that? I don't remember this. This is well, completely I like silly. When he would, you know? I liked when he would just rotate. With oh, I love that so much. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, Gamera's very versatile. He's got a lot of configurations he can go into. You <laughs> but know? The, the interesting thing about, about Gamera was Gamera was um, put out there by a different studio. Mm-hmm. It was Dice. Studios, not Toho, and it started out as a way to obviously capitalize. If you watch the first Gamera movie, it, it doesn't really have like that goofiness you come to associate with it. It's not as serious as the first Godzilla, but I mean, it's in black and white. It's a little bit more like serious, straight on. It's not really a kids' movie, although there is a child in it. But it, it started out as we're going to tie into this kaiju craze, and we're going to have our own. But what happened was. 
because the Gamera movies got so silly and became movies for children in the 60s, Toho actually was influenced by them. Toho <laughs> was looking at them and going, wow, we need to tap into this. And that was what led to the Godzilla movies becoming more juvenile. A, a lot of those Godzilla movies, particularly late 60s, early 70s, Showa, a lot of people don't realize this. They didn't even get full theatrical releases in Japan. They were aimed 100% at children, and they would be packaged. They would be these movie packages. It was called the Champion Carnival, and they were – just for kids and what it would be is you would drop your kid off at the movie theater like for three or four hours really you'd go shopping and they would have it would be a marathon of anime of science fiction of monster movies and the god those godzilla movies like godzilla's revenge godzilla versus megalon and that era smog monster where it really gets silly they would be a part of that package and, and it would just be a theater full of little kids and, and if you think about it that way, you, I think you understand those movies a little bit more if you see it that way. That's really how they – from that era, that's how they were thinking about it. Well, but they were in, in, influenced by the Gamera movies. Uh, another thing that I did watch was uh, him – It's it, it was a comedic commentary on Godzilla and Son of Godzilla. And you know the scenes where he's teaching baby Godzilla – Godzuki, as I understand, no, that's not his real first name. Off, okay, Brian, you got it. You got that right. He's shaking his head because he knows. I know knows, you know. He knows there's no such thing as Godzuki. Right. There's, his there's name Godzuki is Minilla, Ed. It's Minilla. Get it straight. Right. Or or Minya, either name. Or Minya, right, right. I call him Minya, but that's you know that's. But like weird. you're you're watching these scenes, and I'm like, wow. Someone actually poured resources into making this, <laughs> where uh, Minya is doing hops while the tail is swishing back and forth, and he's learning how to be just like Dad Godzilla. Right. I, this completely blows my mind. I'm like, I like the part. There's one part where like Minya kind of screws up, and Godzilla like kind of screws him up. <laughs> like he he doesn't hit him, but he's like, I'm gonna listen, straighten up. You're gonna get a hey, smack. Hey, hey, look, look, look. That was my dad. <laughs> right. but we've all been there, like, you know. Guys of a certain age, we, you know, it's you know, it's like, hey, 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 don't, don't, don't make. It. Godzilla was basically saying, "Don't make me get the belt." Right, <laughs> and, and that, but that scene, you laugh, but that that training scene where I'm going to teach you how to breathe fire, and then he steps, <laughs> steps on, steps on tail, the tail. <laughs> that scene in Son of Godzilla was so popular that they actually restaged it in Godzilla's <laughs> Revenge. It's not archive footage. They shot it again. Wow. They did a, okay. new, a new version of it of Godzilla training his son. Like Because, again, think little kids. They ate it up. They love – and I. what do you think? I have a four-year-old son. What do you think was the first Godzilla movie I showed him? Godzilla's <laughs> Revenge. His little four-year-old head just exploded. <laughs> He's watching Godzilla, and now there's a little baby Godzilla, and he's teaching him. Like, this is right at his level. He's teaching him how to be a monster, you know? It's like it's like it's the perfect kid's movie. Now, did you write the, uh, the Godzilla um, FAQ book first or the pro wrestling book first? Pro Wrestling FAQ came first. And the crazy thing is Godzilla FAQ, 
to be totally honest, has sold a lot better than Pro Wrestling FAQ. And I think it's because it's the right timing. There's all these Godzilla movies coming out now, and he's back kind of in the zeitgeist again. But the thing about it was originally, as much as I, I loved kaiju movies, I loved Godzilla movies, but it wasn't for me like what wrestling was. The wrestling book for me was like I put my heart and my soul into that. But the Godzilla book, it was like after the wrestling book came out, after Pro Wrestling FAQ, I said, hey, guys, if you're, if you're still doing this FAQ series, I can give you a whole list of other pop culture topics that I can write a book about, like I, that I'm like a know-it-all about. And I gave him a list, and it was like Star Wars FAQ and whatever, um, you know, I don't know, Disney FAQ. Like It was a list of all different things, and Godzilla FAQ was on the list, and that happened to be – the one that they picked. And I was like, um, okay. And, and the, the difference was though, as, and I loved those movies growing up. I wasn't as fully plugged into them anymore as I had been. And so that book was more of a learning process. Like I, the pro wrestling FAQ book, I can't honestly say that I learned a ton. I learned some things, but I, I knew so much. The Godzilla FAQ, I learned a lot about Japanese cinema, about the Godzilla movies and how they were made about all of it from writing that book and that book, even though that book was more for me, like uh, it was, it was more work than the wrestling book. Honestly, it wound up being a, a, a big hit. I mean, Godzilla FAQ is the number one selling Godzilla, like non-licensed Godzilla book wow. in the world right now. Wow. <laughs> and I can't even like wrap my head around it, but well, it is. I, I have to say that because I'm a fan of Japanese cinema. Um, uh, the Kurosawa films in particular. And um, Takeshi Shimura, um, who's, you know, the, the general from from Seven Samurai, right? Yes. I was yes. really shocked. And I've, I have to confess, I have never sat and really watched the original Godzilla film ever, right? Wow. Um, in its entirety. At hang least, your right? head in shame. I will hang my head in shame. But, you got to see the original Japanese version. Yeah, you know, and, and that's the thing. It's like, I know we can find these on Criterion or whatever. Um, and then I, but I did see a little, little on YouTube. You can, you can see little scenes from it. And I was just really shocked. Like, is that who I think of? That's Takeshi Shimura <laughs> in this movie. I'm like, wow. Like the, the big Toho actors um, um, from over the, from watching the, the, the Kurosawa films. I'm guessing a lot of these actors are in the uh, are, are in this movie, and I'm like now I'm like really stoked. Hey and man, really a, gig, a gig's a gig, man. A gig is a gig. <laughs> um, Especially back then, I mean, the movies it was almost like the Hollywood studio system. It was a piecemeal system. You were contracted to make yeah. movies, mm -hmm. and you didn't have a say what movies you made. It's like you work for us. These are the movies you're making. You know. Yeah. Yeah. So now, you know, kaiju have this inherent, the films are almost always based around a confrontation. The two, you know, usually two monsters. They'll get an origin movie where here's where this monster comes from. But afterwards, it's going to be, what's the matchup going to be? Who, who, who are these characters going to be? It's almost, it's very visceral. And I'm using that word a lot, by the way, today. Similar to pro wrestling. And now we shift over into how there is that common thread also with superhero stuff of, you know, Titanic forces, you know, pageantry, color in some way, you know, you know, um, where do you find the, the, you know, cause I was telling Ed, I said, you know what? I think that if I were to distill a character, like say the incredible Hulk and what his appeal is, I said, 
the you know if especially in a film if you're going to use that character on film i said it's it's pro wrestling meets kaiju it, that's the incredible hulk it's it's co you know no one wants to see a hulk detective story <laughs> and we, me and Ed got into a whole thing where it's like, will will Hulk be investigating? Will he also be the prosecutor? And like, Hulk, right. Hulk, Hulk, no, you wrote note that day. Hulk, no, fingerprint, I find, will be on. You know, <laughs> we want to see him bust heads with, you know, another monster. I mean, I think that that personally, I think that's why the uh, Leterrier uh, MCU Hulk movie works better for me than the Ang Lee movie because oh, I think like, I think for everyone it works because better. It, hey dude I know a lot of people who will swear by that Ang Lee movie you know what I mean I, I, I enjoyed it but but I think the MCU one is better you know it because right. it gives you what you want you're like I right. want to see the Hulk Hulk out and I want to see him fight another right. monster like Ang Lee made like the Hulk art house movie you know mm. what I mean and it's fun it's actually really visually visually interesting I, I like I it. I love it, the way he did that movie. I love the panel yeah. stuff, which a lot of people poo-poo. But I'm going like, no, he really did. The casting is great. But yeah. the movie called The Hulk, I'm, you know, I'm open to something different. But first Hulk movie, I better see a lot of Hulk. And I think that that was one of the issues he didn't really. Yeah, versus you. a tank is just wasn't enough, right? So, and then right. the second one comes. The the second one comes out where, like you say, the last few minutes he's fighting against Abomination in Harlem. And that's straight, straight up kaiju. It's a ki- it's a kaiju wrestling match, you know, just sort of. And like, where do you know? What do you find is that? Do you find that as common thread between those things as as a as different three different kind of genres that are all fantasy to a degree or one degree or another? Yeah, it, it's interesting because um, wrestling has become more like that over the decades, right? Than it was, and it's more. It's like a comic book now. It's like a monster movie. And, and I think that they all three of those things, and I'm not the first one to say this, like they're very – and look, I know there's a lot more crossover now uh, of people of all genders that enjoy wrestling and superheroes and monster movies. But traditionally, the thought was this is something for guys, and that's what a lot of the marketing was, and especially for boys, for little boys, a lot of it. And it's like they all tie into this power fantasy, all of them, where it's like you're imagining yourself as this incredibly powerful thing. And, 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 you, and you're cathartically enjoying watching these incredibly powerful beings just lay into each other and destroy as much as possible. And it taps into something very primal traditionally seen in young men in boys this idea especially when you're little and you don't have a lot of power and you're imagining (laughs) yourself every little boy thinking one day i'm going to be big and strong and i'm going to be able and no one's going to be able to pick me up and put me down and push me around i you know i'm going to be powerful and you're and you're fantasizing and all those things tap into that obviously superheroes you know wrestling it's more symbolic but with superheroes it's right out there it's it's like it, you know, uh, it, it's giant, powerful, usually men just destroying things. Absolutely, I, I we're on the same definite wavelength on that on that one. Um, there is something about also the superhero part where I'm gonna give superheroes, in my opinion, the edge over kaiju and the edge over what's done with pro wrestling for only this reason. I think that. 
you know, a Superman story, a a Hulk story can get more textured and can be really about something. Mm. Ultimately, that's one of my issues with like watching some of those Heisei um, um, kaiju movies is you go, I'm not sure this is about anything. <laughs> and even if it were, it's not engaging me. I do not give a cr- Like I say, what do you I mean? Was, it's about friendship. You know, you have, you have a, <laughs> a giant love to a, destroy a monsters. Of, you have a giant, uh, a, a giant robotic looking guy. <laughs> Handshaking a, a, right, a giant but lizard. No, well, but I, I mean, mean like, on. again, it's sort of like, like, even when it is about something, first of all, it's like, you know, even Showa era stuff. What's the, what's the part of a, of a Godzilla movie I like the most? The monster fighting. What's the part I like the least? Whatever the story is about Hideki, the pilot, and his photographer girlfriend. <laughs> we don't right. 12 year old. Right. You know, You're so, just waiting for that to end, and can we get back to the monsters again? <laughs> Whereas right. with superhero stuff, with themes and stuff, with the story, especially as they, beca- they become, they became more textured and a lot more complicated, even though. Just like those other things, the appeal was towards younger, younger boys. You can do stuff. They can be thematically, dramatically richer. And am I off? Am I being a snob here, Bri? Am I being a, a, a snob, you know, going, yes, these things are connected. Yes, there are similarities. But it's, I always, hey, look, there's something and that is connected to all this, which is Mecha Sentai stuff. I am always shitting on the Power Rangers, Bri. I can't help it. It's just who I am because I watch it and everyone goes, yeah, this is just like superhero stuff. And I go, pump your brakes. <laughs> okay. It's not even a question of me being old and older guy. It's like, literally I go, what is an, any average episode of power Rangers about nothing? It is just the pro wrestling monster fight thing. Right. Or like Ultraman was like that too, which was a big influence on power Rangers. Right. And yeah. And so like, am I off? Am I being a snob? You tell me. No, no, not at all. And I think, you know, um, the, the interesting thing about comics that they always have to contend with, and wrestling does too to a certain degree, is the story never ends. Hmm. So, like, uh, you have to figure out a way to keep it going. Uh, there can never really be a full resolution because they, they, you know, that's one of the reasons why, you know, people always get all up in arms when they make a superhero movie and the villain dies, right? Or, like, the Joker is killed at the end, let's say. And they're like, but wait a minute, you know, the Joker can't die because, you know, he's like Batman's arch enemy and they've got to like keep fighting forever. And then you're thinking, well, not really, because in the comic books, yes, the movie is a self-contained product. It's a self-contained story. So like Michael Keaton isn't out there right now dressed as Batman fighting bad guys like the movie's over. So (laughs) in that self-contained story. You have to tell the best story you can tell. And so it makes a great story if the Joker dies in the end. Not that he has to, but it makes for a great story for the movie. You can't do that in the comics because you still got to put out another book the next month. And if you kill off all your great villains, you're stuck. So the villains can't die. They have to keep going. And You have limitations, but in a way it's a strength because it's like this story that never ends. And I really feel like um, – The storytelling aspect of comics really for me – and again, maybe it's my age and I'm showing my age. I really feel like uh, 70s, 80s, early 90s, that to me is the peak of the writing aspect of of comic books where I I feel like in the early decades of comics – uh, like you have somebody like Jack Kirby, who is definitely a lot of people and I I included would say is overall – 
the greatest um, illustrator in the history of comics. Just be, uh, uh, the influence that he had, the power that he had, the, the way that he could, the way that he could portray action in a way that had never been done before. In just one like panel, things, all in one right, panel. Th- things exploding off the page, right? And, you know, maybe he wasn't always like the master of anatomy, but who cares? You know, <laughs> neither was neither neither was like Todd McFarlane and all those people that people <laughs> fetishize and Rob Liefeld. You know, but no like ankles. it was. No it was ankles. the action, right, that he could portray. But I would I would argue this. This is what I'm trying to get at here. Is if you go back to let's say the golden age or the early silver age, if you got some of those great artists like a Jack Kirby or like a Steve Ditko, uh Joe Simon, like those guys if it wasn't for comic books, they would still have had a lucrative career in art in commercial illustration. They would have done something. But on the writing end of things, if comic books didn't exist, Stan Lee is not going to be out there becoming like the next great novelist. He's not going to be writing short stories and things. He's probably going to be in a completely different line of work. And that's nothing against him. But what I mean is it isn't until you get into like the Bronze Age, the early modern age, that you start getting writers coming in. And maybe it's because they grew up with comics. People like like Chris Claremont, Claremont or, you O'Neill, know, those guys, Alan Moore, yeah, Alan right? Moore, Denny yeah. O'Neill, people that were like writing these incredibly nuanced stuff. Where you think again, and, and even Frank Miller, I'm not his biggest fan, but you think like, okay, even if comics didn't exist, this guy has writing chops. This guy could write, like he could write a screenplay, he could write a, a, a book. This guy's that 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 to me is where you start getting into like the height of comic book writing where some of that Chris Claremont X-Men stuff. I mean, you can put that up against any of the great, you know, kind of like sequential storytelling that's ever been done, you know, and and, and that's the strength of, of comic books where, like I said, the story keeps going. So you could tell whatever you can you can play the long game, right? Mm. You could tell these stories that go on for years where else can you do that? You could have something that pays off years down the road. It, it, you know, it, it, it's very unique. Well, I mean, you mentioned Claremont, and there is a perfect example of Dark Phoenix, where, like, if you add up the individual issues from between where Jean Grey is, you know, oh, the sh- space shuttle's coming down, Cockrum is still doing the art. Yes. And, you know, all the way to the Burn Claremont time, and Burn Claremont and Terry Austin are just ripping it up. Uncanny X-Men's number one, and it's like, that was years. That was years worth of backstory and building and so on and so forth, and especially Claremont with all of his, like, dangling, you know, plot threads and stuff that were, he wanted, he should have gotten to, but he wasted, he was, he was teasing it for 25 years, that kind of stuff. Well, like you say, the the common thread with him and Kirby, they were all world building, right? Uh, yes. Claremont, um, I mean, goes into space and star jammers and all that stuff. And the whole, you know, the like what? Uh, Jim, Jim Starlin, another one, deserves yeah. a lot of credit. Jim Starlin was a genius. Well, a I mean, again, genius. you know, we just you watch Endgame and you, you know, there is a part of me that goes like, I remember I remember reading Starlin's all this stuff. And I I'm feel like, like here it, it is. Crazy as street. it sounds, Jim Starlin might be the one writer who has most influenced these at the this MCU saga more than any other Marvel writer or artist. I mean, he he might be the one that is that is the most important to what they're doing right now with the movies. 
Uh Bri is definitely showing off his uh <laughs> his his I'm 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 bathing in the uh, fanboy radiation that you're giving off right now. Um, uh, so I'm just preparing for my new book. And know. I was just about to get to that. That's exactly what the secret. So you are now, uh, you've covered wrestling. You are covering, you covered a Godzilla. Now we are here. You are working on a superhero uh, a book. This is the perfect time for it. This is the explosion. Where does the impetus for that come from? And what are you hoping to do um, right now, because things, plans, you can change. You haven't written, you haven't put pen to paper yet for it. Right. But you're, you're in the, I assume you're in the research for, you know, forming everything. What do you hope to do with something like that? And how do you feel about superheroes in society right now? Especially with comic book stores closing down. I know. So this book is going to be called Superheroes. Uh, the, the, well, we don't have a t- title totally set in stone, but it's going to be kind of like Superheroes, the ultimate history of pop culture's hottest phenomenon, something like that. But the idea of it was it started as another FAQ idea and it grew into something much, much more than that because the company that puts out the FAQ books um, basically said, you know, we're going to discontinue this series. And I was kind of like, I think that's a great idea because I don't think it's the greatest thing in the world to lump all these things into one very kind of like cookie cutter series. And I think it makes the books even better if they really stand on their own as their own entity. So the book became now is, is a standalone entity. And, and the way I see it is this. And I want to be clear about this because when I was first conceptualizing it, I'm thinking in my head, OK, we're going to write about we're going to have a section about, you know, uh, the Golden Age and then the Silver Age. And then I had to stop myself and go, here's the thing. I don't necessarily want this to be – this book is not going to be the history of comic books. That's a big part of it. This book is the history of the idea of superheroes, which is like way predates comic books. And now as we see, it's almost like we're entering a post-comic book era of superheroes where – for guys our age, this makes your hair turn gray. But look, (laughs) I'm I'm a school teacher and I'm telling you – There's a whole generation of young kids now that love these characters. They love superheroes. Not only have they never picked up a comic book in their lives, they don't even know that these characters come from comic books. So that's my mind-blowing statement for you today because to them, these are movie characters. You know, these are bigger than that. And for better or worse – that's kind of what's happened where all you got to do is you, you look at the opening of the Marvel movies, right? It used to be their logo would be all the, all the, the pages, comic book yeah. panels, right? Now they're like, we've literally moved beyond the comic books now. And, and now we're going to show you scenes from our movies. It's like, cause the movies have, you know, in the old days when it was just like every now and then there'd be a Batman or a superhero movie or the wonder woman TV show. It was very clear. This is riding off of comic books. That's that connection is not as much clear anymore. These characters now have become bigger than comic books. They really have. And so what I'm saying to tie it back to the book is the book is really bigger than that. It's it's the whole so I'm talking about going back to like Gilgamesh, you know right, what I mean? Exactly. Like all of it. Hercules, Samson, all that crazy stuff. And taking it right up through, you know, literary figures like Scarlet Pimpernel, who's sort of like the first proto Batman. He is. He's like the first literary character who has like a secret identity. He fights crime. He, he wears a mask. You know, it's like the beginning of that idea. And then you get like the Phantom in comic strips before, you know, and, and then Superman and, and and we're off to the races. Right. But but so I want the book to be bigger than just that. So so, um, you know, there might be a chapter 
that's devoted to Marvel Comics or a chapter devoted to DC Comics. But but this book is very different from – it's not a history of comic books because that also – if I did that, it would be a lot more than just superheroes. It's a history of the concept of superheroes. That's what I want to do. I often say on a show that my entry gateway into that world, um, Han Solo, um, Zorro, and the Lone <laughs> Ranger. The Lone Ranger, mo- the, I mean, the Lone Ranger movies from the 80s made such an impression, again, because uh, growing up in Jersey for the first six years, first seven years of my life as a latchkey kid – that was pretty much all that they showed. This is this is yes. This is Ed's way of saying he had pirate HBO. I had pirate <laughs> HBO because as someone at the same time who also had pirate HBO, I that did. 1980s that 1980s Lone Ranger movie was something they showed all, all the, the time. time. So so for kids that had pirate HBO in the early 80s, <laughs> I got one word for you: super fuzz. Uh. I'm just gonna put that. Right there. Speaking oh of Oh my god. We're the amb- we're the ambassador hey, correct me if I'm wrong. Where the ambassador from Klingon <laughs> is some kind of robot super cop. For those yes. of you looking at it was John Shuck, right? Is John Shuck super fuzz? No, 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 no. He's no. some weird uh, where's he from? No, that actor? He, he was an Italian actor. Italian actor. Because oh. Super Fuzz was actually an Italian made film. Yes. It was directed I, okay, by I'm thinking, no, no, I got no. it mixed up with something else that is similar. No. I'm so you're Ladies, right, you're right, you're right. Yes. Ladies and gentlemen, Super on this show, Brian is the second person to ever reference Super Fuzz. Super uh, Fuzz was made by Sergio Corbucci, who's the guy who directed Django in the original and a ton of spaghetti westerns. Uh, uh, Ernest Borgnine was the sidekick. Yes. That makes no, no sense to me whatsoever. That is and the, the only definition way, of the, plumbing. So Super Fuzz gains his powers from an explode from some weird nuclear explosion, and he loses his power whenever he, he sees the color red. Yes. Uh, I, oh my God. I remember that. Listen, I remember the theme. Don't make me sing it. Fine, I'll sing it. No, no. Here's a super duper. Here's a super duper. <laughs> and then, and then throughout the movie, though, there would be the musical cue. Every now and then would pop up. You'd hear super super. <laughs> right. Now, okay. See, this is very interesting because look at that. On paper, academically speaking, right? <laughs> I mean, if you you know seriously, if you on paper academically. Super Fuzz, that's a superhero story. It is. It's well, not from a comic <laughs> Right? It's not from a comic book. It's his original idea. And, yeah. you know, I would say post-Donner Superman, you start to see this sort of idea of, and it's slow, but slowly but surely the rest of, like, pop culture movies start going like, oh, we can make our own versions of this. Like, it doesn't have to be based on a comic book. I would right. argue. I would argue th- even the 1980s action movie. You know, guys, we already mentioned. I mean, you look at Commando, and it's like, yeah, ain't not. No matter how many, how much bullets, guns, or tech you want to make this based in reality, there is nothing Arnold does in that movie that is real. <laughs> he's killing yeah. guys with a touch. He's <laughs> falling from 747s until you know what I mean. He's he's playing Tarzan in the middle of a of a mall. And there is that sort of like, okay, we want these we want these heroes to be not just larger than life personality-wise, but they have to be beyond the abilities of any mortal man. Suddenly, 
every guy in the movie is James Bond. Luck is always on their side and they're completely invulnerable to like, you know, even if it's like, yeah, you could shoot him, but he's never going to get shot in this movie. It's, you, the, yeah. it's never going to be a possibility. But, but there's a big tradition of that in the movies though, too. I mean, like going back to the, the old serials and like Lone Ranger and Flash Gordon and like all these like action heroes, you know, in the eighties, of course it was the action heroes, figuratively and literally on steroids. But before that, you still had them, you know. I mean, it was the swashbucklers and all the cliffhangers and everything. And so you're you're taking an approach that is very holistic saying, "Okay, here's this idea. Well, to you, okay, if you had to and we'll this is where we'll 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 we'll, we'll wind down. If you had to for your book, and I I actually assume maybe this is something you've thought about. What does define superhero as a concept? So I mean, I, what are I the basic you know, things? That's one of the things that I really do need to like set down, and I haven't a hundred percent done it yet because I'm still in the conceptualizing phase. But I think there's a few things you need. Um, it does, they don't have to be superhuman because you have like people like Batman, mm -hmm. right? But it has to be somebody with. Definitely whose abilities are beyond the abilities of the average person who can do things that the average person cannot do, right? And they usually make a symbol out of themselves in some way so it's not just a guy. And that's why I wouldn't necessarily consider things like Commando. It has to be something that's more – it almost becomes like, a, like an avatar in some way. It's some symbolic person. And they also obviously have to choose to use those abilities to help people – to fight evil, to save people, to destroy the evil uh, of society. So it's like a combination of all those things would make somebody a superhero, usually but not always somebody who is in some way disguised or has an identity separate from their everyday, although that, that's not necessarily always the case. But definitely in the modern idea of a superhero, it is. So it's a lot of different things. Okay. Okay. So you got you got some work cut out for you in 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 like organizing all this stuff because again, superhero as that concept can be applied to so many different things, and so many cultures have produced things that are, if not exactly the same, mm -hmm. pretty damned close. I mm -hmm. mean, I always like to look at these days. Um, I took my I took my cousin, and I don't, Bri, I don't want to get any pushback from you here because I know that there's. There's hard feelings all around about a lot of stuff these days, but um, I adored Man of Steel. Adored it. I went to the theater and I saw it six times, as everyone who who goes to the podcast know. I grew up on the Donner Superman, but I loved Snyder's Man of Steel. Now, I took my cousin uh, and sometime occasional guest on the show, AJ, to see it. And he didn't know, he didn't grow up with the Donner Superman. He doesn't read the comics, so like I'm going like, how do I explain this all to this guy? And I was like going like... Okay, in words that you can understand, um, Superman is Goku, uh, Zod <laughs> is Vegeta, uh, Bartok is Jor-El, um, and like, look at those two cultures, and Dragon Ball Z is based on Chinese mythology. Goku is right. supposed to be Hanuman. It's the, it's the journey to the West, right? And yet, the ultimate product still comes down to this like, if you define this character, it's like, well, who is he? Well, he's from another planet, and he arrived on Earth, and he's not 
sophisticated as a city dweller. His origin is somewhere in the hinterlands, in the purity of the of the people who still live, you know, in the old ways. But somehow that was so formative for him, it made his personality what he is. And now he also has combined the fact that because he comes from outer space, he's got all these powers. You see where that, like, it's like, okay, I don't think Akira Toriyama, I don't think he consciously said, I'm going to ape Superman. Somehow, somewhere along the way, it just came out that way. Yeah. You so know, that's another part of it, too, right? And, and I think that these are characters that tie into cultural archetypes. They're not – so it's not just an everyday story. You have the word super right in there, right, which means over, above, right? So this is something that ties into bigger things – in our cultural memory, right? A lot of these characters do. They're, they're larger than life. And that's what even makes some of the characters that necessarily don't have superhuman powers, like a Batman, or even like you're talking about, like going back to like Zorro or the Lone Ranger, they tie into these bigger cultural ideas. You know, like the Lone Ranger, by putting on that mask and wearing that suit, he becomes a symbol. He's not just an avenging force. He's the avenging force. Like he represents all the pioneers kind of feeling of we have to protect ourselves from these very dangerous forces out here in the frontier that are trying to take advantage of us in this lawless world. Like he is the embodiment of all of that. Just to give an example of, of a character that maybe doesn't have powers, but he's still bigger than human. Was the impetus of the uh, of of this particular book? Um, I, and I'm not. Uh, you're still school teaching, yes? Well, uh, right now, these days, post COVID and everything, I'm I'm not in a classroom. Right. I don't have a, but I tutor. I, okay. I, I I work one on one with students, so I'm still in education. Right. Yes. So then it sounds like that. You know, um, again, you're you've got the Dr. Giordano bug. Right, um, which is basically you know you're you're having to educate your students on pretty much what uh, what Campbell was discussing from his from his early works and his discussions with George Lucas about the archetypes, um, what it means to be a hero, the religious and the uh, mythological aspects to to to, to what the sub subject matter um, uh, really is trying to get down to. Um, but my ultimate question to you, and I'm, I really am coming full circle, have you or have you not shown Excalibur to these kids yet? <laughs> <laughs> I have. <laughs> and, and, you know, honestly, there's a, there's a, myth, a, a mythology well-placed long before comic books are ever a thing. And yet, you know, Certain themes that they don't rely up, but you know, me and Ed, we we just did a gushing review of the Snyder cut of Justice League, and you know, what is the Arthurian tales about? I mean, you know, a king will a king will die in combat, but we are promised at the end of that story he will return again. You know, in the nation's you know time of now, you know the you know the sword must be thrown back into the lake because. Somewhat a rebirth of Arthur in some way is going to come. These things are, you know, that's Justice League. You know, you look at that same right. mythological stuff. Let's gods. you know, to, you know, and <clears throat> gods among it's us. interesting. Gods among us, or you know, people touching the not the mundane in the world. I think that's a little more Marvel. Is that, or at least originally was, but. Here we are now with a society that's kind of like saturated in these mythologies that are like, you know, 
intricate, but also very appealing. And so is like, when you are writing a book for this, do you keeping in mind now that we are now in this age where this is now almost the lingua franca? Like, this is like, everyone knows Batman's origin. Everyone's super Superman's origin. Everyone now, just a few years ago, who knew where Iron Man came up? And now we're intimate with that. Right. That That is a big part of it, and it's a part of the timing of the book, is it's become such a part of our culture. It's strange to think of, because especially if you look back on, uh, like, for you're talking about the Donner movie in, in the 70s. The interesting thing about that movie is, you know, now you're talking about an older generation in those days who actually, these were not people that grew up on comic books for the most part. Like they're older than comic books, you know what I mean? Or, or, or they weren't as big as they had been. So for them, it meant something very different. And it was much harder to sell that kind of a movie back then because you had a studio people that were going like, well, this is stuff the kids read. Like what my kid reads these things. What am I going to, you know, no one's going to care about this. No one's going to take it seriously. Until, That's why it was so- until a, a little, a little guy from, you know, Southern California named George Lucas said, Right. No, no, no. The kids are going to care. You're going to care. Everyone's going to care. And I'm going to show you how we can make money hand over fist, not just with the movie, but getting those kids to buy these cheap pieces of plastic and fill up, you know, and a whole sea change. Right. And the superhero stuff. So now we're we're living in that. Yeah. Yeah. We're living in a time now where, you know, stuff that used to be just considered the domain of kids. Not only has it become taken seriously as stuff for adults, but not even in its original kid form. Because the fact of the matter is it, they, they, it was originally made for kids, a lot of this stuff. But, but it isn't really anymore. And so the, the art form itself has matured and it's become something more than it ever, than it ever was. You know, uh, uh, nowadays, everyone making these movies and everyone involved creatively, they have a reverence for this, which I think wasn't always there. And it's become, yeah, l- like – mainstream culture, mainstream society where it really never, never was. I mean, it was always kind of pulpy stuff on the periphery or in another form, it was almost like, you know, cause we talk about the prototype origins. It was almost, it, it's, it was almost a religious thing, you know, like Arthur is a Christ figure and you could even, I, I won't argue this in the book cause I don't need to go down this road, but you could argue that Jesus Christ is a superhero figure. You know, the things he does and his abilities and, and, the, and the purpose of, of why he's here. I mean, look, some of the characters like Hercules, for example, mm-hmm. Hercules is a superhero. Now we don't think of Hercules these days as a religious figure, but Hercules was a religious figure. He, he, they were cults that worshiped Hercules. For and in thousands fact, a lot of, of years. For thousands for of years. Time. And not only that, but when they were, you know, in terms of Christ in those early centuries, when they were trying to sort of appeal, make him appeal to a lot of those European pagans, they tied him into Hercules. Like there are so many parallels in the story uh, of, of of Hercules and Christ and, and other other you know mythological and religious figures too. But these guys are, in a certain sense, superheroes. You know, they're uh, like the original okay, idea uh, of superheroes. Ed, Ed, um, I'm just going to say this. So, uh, <laughs> so why have you been keeping Brian from me, huh? <laughs> Why, why have you we tried years ago. Because, we tried because, years ago. Because the truth is, Ed will just tell you what you just did for the last five minutes talking about that. R- am I wrong? This is every conversation every we've ever had. Every single conversation we've ever because had. Because I have a years. whole <laughs> spiel that I'm not going to let down now where I go, Jesus Christ, Hercules, Thor, and Superman. 
I'll break that. I'll break that down to you, <laughs> and how they all dovetail into one another is uh, uh, is ridiculous. Is yes. ridiculous. Um, By the way, the nuns you, are praying for you right now. Yeah, they've been praying for a long time. Well, as long as but one see, old lady and, and doesn't look, come with the chancleta to to beat me up, I'll I'll, I'll be cool. Uh, right. I'm sorry. What are you going to say, Brian? No, I was just going to say the difference is, and like I said, I, I you know I'm not in the book. I'm not totally comfortable getting into that only because you know christianity is an active religion today that people you know i was i was raised as a devout catholic i go to i go to church when i when i could go to church and you know th this is whereas hercules it, it, that's a dead religion so it's a little safer to talk about it in those terms and you know you you enter this kind of territory where you you'll, you don't want to belittle people's beliefs by by shoving in their face that okay this is just a cultural ar archetype that's been done a thousand times before like i don't want to be bill maher yeah yeah so, right. I, I, no one who does who does well right. you're not bill maher but, but, but it is a fact it is a fact it, it divorce it from you know the, the the fact that it's an active religion in the world today Yes, it does have a lot of parallels with a lot of other figures in, in history, sure. So, you know, look, we have come a long way. We, we started out with talking about uh, Zaverian High School, and uh, now we're doing some religious commentary. So it's all, it's all tied up in a bow is what I'm trying <laughs> all, to say. It's all one jumble. Uh, this yeah. has been a wonderful experience, Bri. Thank you so much for coming on. Um, I love whenever I get to talk about like this at this level with people who, you know, are not just fans and educated on it, but have a, an, an analytical mind towards it, um, you know, who are like, like, you know, why do I like this? Why is this popular? You know, what, what is the sort of the appeal and also wide breadth of knowledge. And man, did you, you brought it today, brother. You brought it today. Good time. I, um, I think a lot about this stuff. And <laughs> Ed, Ed will tell you, that's the same thing where we will talk and I go, we'll go and I'll be on for 15 minutes. And I go, and why am I thinking this Ed? Why am I thinking this? Cause I think about this crap way oh. too much. <laughs> uh, Brian Solomon, uh, you have reju rejuvenated my soul, um, at least for the week. Um, Just for one week. Uh, Godzilla FAQ, Pro Wrestling FAQ. You've got a new book. You've got a bunch of other books that you've that you haven't started. And now you can buy. Uh, is there anything else you want to plug? Do you have a website? Sure. Twitter? Yeah, I do. So, and I also, so I've got Godzilla FAQ and Pro Wrestling FAQ out there. I also want to say, and we didn't talk about it too much, but but the book I'm finishing up now that's coming out next year is a biography of a professional wrestler, the Sheik, the original Sheik. And it's called Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real life story of wrestling's original Sheik. And that will be coming out March of next year. Wait, Sheik so, has an Iron Sheik? Sheik? No, not the said, Iron Sheik. He said the, the person who apparently before. The original oh, okay. Sheik. Okay. Yeah, the Iron Sheik is, you know, in today's culture, much more well known from a pop culture point of view. But the original Sheik, Ed Farhat, was a much more significant figure in wrestling history. And one of the reasons I wrote the book is for that exact purpose, to demonstrate that and to restore his name so people are aware of this, of this figure who's actually very important but has been totally overshadowed by the Iron Sheik. And that book, that book comes out uh, next year. The Superheroes book, um, I haven't even started on yet. That's probably, I'm thinking, going to be, from what I know, um, 20, well, I think it'll be probably 2023 or maybe late 2022 that it comes out. But so if people want to find me, um, I am Brian R. Solomon on Twitter, um, on Facebook. If you look up pro wrestling FAQ, I actually post a lot of the wrestling stuff on there. 
I also have the Vault of Horror on Facebook where I post a lot of Godzilla and monster movie stuff. Um, on Instagram, I'm Brian Solomon Author. Those are the best places. I have a website, but because I'm way too cheap to get like a premium, easy to remember <laughs> URL, the best way to find the website, if you go to those social media platforms, there is a link and you can find it. I update it all the time. And one of these days, I'm going to invest in actually getting a really nice URL. So. Uh, Brian, please do come back to the show. We, yes. We've had so much, uh, not just so much fun, but, uh, you know, whenever we have a guest who really pretty much provides this much content and, and knowledge. And context and everything else. And is, and is, and is great and personable. You, you, you told your stories well. So we're very, very happy. Also... We're we're gonna have to talk about that superhero book. Like I'm not even yeah. joking. When you if you when you want to start talking about the mythological and religious stuff, give me an effing call. Because <laughs> we it. can chew the fat. Off. I can I can I got ideas. Is all I'm saying. You should you should send me a, a friend request on Facebook. We'll be able to connect a lot a lot easier too. You can okay. follow all my weirdness that way. You know? <laughs> uh, we we can't thank you enough for coming on the show. Uh, we have our show closer coming in here. So before we leave, as always, I would like to thank Jonathan Vergar for the use of Pancake Studios. Always uh, my, uh, my 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 co pilot here, Edward Ing. Uh, I was, I, I, very much uh, thanking our guest today. Um, and until next time. To be continued! Wow! It's Godzilla! Hey, thanks for listening to To Be Continued, a family podcast. Please check us out at www.tobecontinuedafanboypodcast.com. You can also be found on Twitter, Facebook, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify. 